David Lightman was a master at computer games. A fast thinker. Oh, David! Maybe you could tell us who first suggested the idea of reproduction without sex. Your wife? Get out, Lightman. And a promising student at an old game. Hi. With an electronic twist. Are those your grades? Yeah. I don't think that I deserved it, F. Do you? go to jail for that. Only if you're over 18. This computer company is coming out with these amazing new games in a couple of months. And I want to play those games. Wow. What? We got something. He found the right code word to play the game. We're in. But it was the wrong computer. Shall we play a game? How can I ask you that? How about mobile thermal nuclear war? Fine. All right. Trajectory headings for multiple impact re-entry vehicles. What does that mean? I don't know, but it's great. All stations, this is Crystal Palace. Wonder if I should use my subs. Twenty-two Typhoon-class submarines departing Petropavlovsk. What in the hell's happening here? Oh my God! Shall we play? I have seven. Correction, eight. That's eight Redbirds. Get on the sack. Get on the flush the bombers. Russians are still denying everything, sir. Who are you working with? Nobody. I do not believe you. Over day, we have Soviet missile warning. Based on the arrest pending indictment for espionage. Espionage. Confidence is high. I repeat, confidence is high. Cobra Dane, is this an exercise? Negative, this is not an exercise. Me the president on the horn. It's still playing the game. It's gonna start a war. Close up the mouth. Is this a game or is it real? War games. Playing soon at a theater near you. Shall we play? Coming up next at the movies, the story of a young video game player who comes close to starting World War III. I have seven. Correction, eight. That's eight Redbirds, two degrees past apathy. Over day, we have Soviet missile warning. Check for malfunction and report confidence. Our next film has a terrific story idea. It's the story of a bright, cheerful teenage boy who is bored by his high school classes, but enjoys fiddling around with video games and with the computer in his bedroom. At the beginning of the film, he's using his home computer to try to tap into the computer of a toy company and steal their latest video game. Instead, he winds up tapping into the top secret Defense Department computer that controls our nuclear defense system. on Falcon. Shall we play a game? Let's play Global Thermonuclear War. Fine. <laughs> All right. I have seven. Correction, eight. That's eight Redbirds, two degrees past apogee. Better get the old man down here. What the hell? Confidence is high, I repeat. Confidence is high. What is all that stuff? I don't know. They're trajectory headings for multiple impact re-entry vehicles. What does that mean? I don't know, but it's great. <laughs> now, at that point, that kid doesn't realize what's going on. He thinks he's just playing some kind of video game. He doesn't realize 
all the havoc he's creating. It's a terrific premise for a movie, and things get even wilder when Shades of Dr. Strangelove, the missile command center we saw there in Colorado, comes very close to launching a full strike against Russia when their computers, controlled by this little kid, show that Russia is sending off megatons of firepower our way. And just as all hell is about to break loose, young David, that little guy, is in the command center trying to explain what's going on. Well, David, uh, we called your parents. You know, we told them everything's fine. No charge has been filed yet. But uh, I think we are going to need a little time to sort things out here. How, mu how much time? Well, that depends on how willing you are to cooperate. Oh, of course. I tell you what, uh, Sergeant, would you tell the OD I'm going to take David for a little walk? Let's go down to my office. Yes, be more comfortable there. Great. When you heard it on the news, you must have realized how serious it was. Why'd you do it again? I didn't do it again. I even threw the number away. Yeah, they found it in the trash, you know. Joshua called me. Hey, look at that. That's some setup. What did you say? This is some setup. No, no, before that. Joshua called me. <laughs> David, machines don't call people. You're dead. Who are you, uh, who are you going to Paris with? Paris? Oh, no, no, you don't understand. Now, you had reservations for two to Paris. Who are you working with? Nobody. Why don't I believe you? I don't think I should say anything else until I talk to a lawyer. I think we better forget about the lawyer crap until I get a few answers out of you myself. Now, there are a lot of questions in that scene. The little bit with the flights to Paris is another little trick he was playing on his computer. And he's right. He didn't initiate this second attempt at getting into their computer. A computer that they have is starting to play a game with itself. War Games is quite entertaining as long as it stays with that kid and his computer and the generals and the technicians in the command center, Dabney Coleman there. But toward the end, the film falls a little flat when we are introduced to an old retired scientist who preaches the very obvious anti-nuclear war point that the movie has already made in a much more entertaining way. For me, take out the old professor and War Games is terrific. With the professor, it's just very entertaining. Leave the professor in. That's fabulous because it brings it all around. It makes the movie not just a war game, mm. but a story. The basic theme of this movie is who should we trust, the computers right. or human beings? Right. And the movie starts out with the fact that there are some men who cannot bring themselves to fire missiles in a test. So right. at the end, it comes back around to men again. I think that's a very important oh, point. I think Apart from that, I, I agree, it's a fantastically entertaining oh, movie. Oh, very entertaining. I just think that we don't need a lecture. I think that this, I think that this movie is so well-made pictorially, mm -hmm. and it's so much fun, and we realize that the computers are going haywire, that little kids are going to get the point that we don't need the ponderous lecture that we probably would have gotten oh. in films 20 or 30 well, years first ago. First of all, it's not a ponderous lecture. The guy is a very negative person. He's not giving them a lecture about peace. He's saying, this is all going to end. We're all going to get killed. What difference does it make if it happens now or next year? We know what he's saying, Raj. I mean, it's, it's just, I don't need that guy okay, well, walking let's not in get, there. We're, we're having kind of a negative conversation here. Would we both agree? This is a terrifically oh, entertaining yes, I said, movie. I said it's very entertaining. Yeah, I think it's one of the best films just of the year. With just one little problem. Uh, I like the whole film, including the little problem. Our next movie, Tough Enough, is a goofy little sleeper of a movie. Sure, I'd like to get into the computer field, but hey, what's the hurry? I can always start my training tomorrow.
Tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. To learn how you can train to become a computer programmer, operator, or technician, call Control Data Institute now before tomorrow passes you by. In Los Angeles, call Control Data Institute at 642-2345. Did you get that number slip? Yeah, that's Con right. I got, a, I got a call. I got a call. But All I right. can always start my training tomorrow, tomorrow, <laughs> tomorrow, tomorrow. Welcome to episode 41 of CFX, War Games, as you have no doubt discerned from the intro. And for those of you who were alive in the... Uh, the late 70s, early 80s, and, and maybe it was a geographically centered around California. I don't know, but everyone remembers that commercial as much as they remember, you know, uh, Go See Cal, uh, perhaps even. Uh, it was played constantly when we were kids, and I just thought uh, I threw that in as a surprise to you, something to make you That's laugh. funny, yeah. Uh, I remember it well. And it does have some bearing on the topic of, uh, of this movie, as we'll get to, because there's a scene right out of Control Data Institute that we'll wind up talking about. But anyway... Uh, for those of you who are new here, this is the Cultural Futures Exchange, CFX for short. This is a place where we examine different elements of cultural, cultural ephemera, would be the word, um, uh, movie today, but music, TV, books. Well, actually, I'm going to talk about a book today. In fact, the very first book, we keep threatening to talk about a book, and we're actually going to talk about a book, although this episode is not necessarily just about that book. But anyway, the idea here is that uh, uh, what is the future take on this cultural ephemera piece? Is it uh, go long? You think the value is going to go up in the future, go short? You think it's going to go down or stay neutral? And it's really pretty simple. Um, so, yeah, today we're talking about uh, war games, and we're also going to be uh, talking about another uh, related book that took place. It's a real-life thing. It took place a couple of years later after war games, uh, uh, called The Cuckoo's Egg by a guy named a very interesting fellow named Clifford Stoll. So anyway, um, do you have anything to say before we talk a little bit more about the conceit of this particular episode and how we have it set up? Uh, not really. I think, um, yeah, this will be a bit different. So we've been doing a lot of, uh, well, I guess I always have something to say. Uh, we'll be doing a little bit uh, differently than we've done in the last few episodes, like we've done movie walkthroughs where we walk through the movie step by step and kind of throw our commentary in the middle of that. We're not going to be really doing that. Um, and then, yeah, the the cuckoo's egg will be talking about kind of at the end, but I think we're also going to mention things about it within as it relates to this film. And we should say this is a very zeitgeisty film right now because it's experiencing its 40th anniversary this yep. summer. Uh, when we're recording this, uh, probably this episode will air around September of 2023. And um, yeah, but I mean, the the movie is, people are talking about this movie and we'll talk about why that is. And I think that's one of the reasons we decided to do it. Yep. Yeah, and this movie, um, part of the zeitgeist around this movie is hacking, hacking culture, computer culture. And we'll talk about um, how that sort of has transformed in the last 40 years before this movie, the impact that this movie had, um, and then, you know, some stuff after uh, the movie in terms of all of this stuff. And we'll cover our usual uh, sort of fare as far as our personal histories, uh, the making of the film, um, interesting tidbits, and that usual kind of stuff. So... Yeah, I think we should also mention this movie. Uh, one thing that 
when I saw this movie back in the day, and one thing that it really is about also is the whole peak of the Cold War um, and what it was like living in the 80s with Reagan as president and how we were all pretty much afraid we were all going to die. And this movie really taps into that for me. And, it, uh, you know, I'll be talking about that. Additionally, this movie also uh, is very zeitgeisty right now just because of the rise of artificial intelligence and importance of artificial intelligence that this movie is amazingly prescient about. Yeah. Um, and we'll be talking about some of that as well. Absolutely. Yep. We'll cover all of that. So let's talk a little bit about the computer scene, hacking scene, um, prior to call it 1980. Um, I would say, you know, oversimplifying um, that, uh, you know, I was say I was sort of in the, you know, the third wave of, uh, of early hackers. And I'll talk about my history there, but, you know, first off, you know, before really most people had access to computers, there were, um, you know, phone freaks and like guys, very famous, like the, uh, this guy uh, called captain crunch. Um, he was, his real name was John Draper. Um, and then there was another kind of character that he knew who was this blind kid who had perfect pitch, who could, um, sort of hear tones and know what frequency the, the, the tones were. Um, played at a lot of musicians, uh, you know, have this developed disability. Um, some number of people have this innate, some people can sort of quasi develop it. But the idea with phone freaking is that the phone system, um, you know, through the different switches and connectors and, you know, certainly not any kind of expert here. Um, a lot of the manipulation of those systems were done through the playing of, of certain frequency tones in certain orders. And some of these uh, early uh, characters had figured out how to uh, manipulate those, uh, you know, create those tones, manipulate them, and then do stuff like make for, uh, free phone calls or, you know, cause wreak havoc on the various switches in the, in the phone system and, and, and things like that. But, you know, for the most part, um, there weren't personal computers. I mean, people who had access to computers were generally in university environments or, you know, in corporate environments where engineering firms and things like that. But for the most part, um, you know, personal computers were not accessible or um, inexpensive enough uh, for most people uh, to have, right? Yeah, I should uh, tell a little story here. So I used to work uh, a technical, my first technical job was technical support in the 90s. And I worked with a guy who was one of the older guys on the team. And he was talking about when he first started studying computers, they would, you know, uh, computers were so inaccessible that, um, and we'll talk about this with Cuckoo's Egg as well, where people had to spend money to even use them, uh, you know, or even share a simple Unix machine, you know, that you could have in your house right now. But these were bigger, larger computers, right? But then they would also, early computing also involved using punch cards to run programs. So he would, he would basically write his program and on a punch card and he would send this in to actually have it run. So you can imagine like if there was a bug in the turnaround yeah. time, but he was talking about, and, and Barb's, my wife's mother was an early computer programmer and she talked about this too. In fact, in her things, we found these old punch cards that were basically programs. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's really interesting. And um, we should also mention that this early phone freaking has a couple of homages to it in the actual movie War Games that we're going to cover. There was a couple of references to uh, phone freaking and using tones, uh, yep. which we'll talk about. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, one of the other things about, um, 
you know, the early phone freaks in the guy I mentioned, one of the more famous ones, this guy, John Draper, Captain Crunch, uh, Steve Wozniak, one of the co-founders of, of Apple was uh, a friend of this guy's and an early business that Wozniak and Jobs had, um, people may not know this was uh, creating and selling blue boxes. Um, what's a blue box is, I think it is a 2600 Hertz tone, which um, you could use to, you know, at the right place in time, um, you know, make free telephone calls if you knew how to do it. And so, you know, Woz uh, knew this character and was, you know, they were making money selling these, you know, kind of like hacking devices. Maybe people don't know this early Apple history there. Um, the same guy, John Draper, uh, uh, Wozniak, loved this guy. Everyone else thought he was a creep and weird. Um, but he was, this guy, Draper, wrote one of the first word processors on the Apple II called Easy Writer, which I uh, remember fondly. So I did not know that. Um, Draper was busted for various phone fraud, you know, you know on various phone fraud charges, um, served time at various points. And in the more recent years, um, has come to some notoriety for getting kicked out of various uh, kind of DEF CON hacking conferences for, for being uh, kind of a perv and sexually harassing people and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, there you go. Maybe a troubled individual. I, f I forget. Did you, I might've missed it when you were talking. Did you actually talk about why he was called Captain Crunch? Uh, I didn't. So uh, good yeah. point. So he's called Captain Crunch because there was a toy in Captain Crunch cereal um, that would emit this 2600 uh, hertz uh, tone um, that, uh, or it was a kilohertz. No, it must have been hertz. Uh, tone that uh, was uh, used uh, to phone, do phone freaking. So this innocent kids toy in cereal. Yeah, it was um, a blue, little blue whistle. Little blue whistle. That you would uh, blow and it would give you free calls. Yep, exactly. And he figured that out. So, so yeah, it's really interesting. There's, it definitely talks about, um, and obviously Steve Jobs had met Waz around this time and they were really into this. And there was kind of this libertarian kind of rebellious spirit uh, that kind of plays into hacking with these original, you know, obviously these guys were brilliant, right? The guy wrote these early word processor. Obviously Waz was a brilliant engineer, um, you know, and, but they were really, they really had a free spirited kind of lawlessness about them too. Um, they just, you know, and it, it kind of plays into this whole character of the hacker, which we'll talk about more. Yep, exactly. Um, so the other thing that uh, I wanted to mention here is um, the video game from the early 80s called Missile Command. Uh, those who were around finally remember this game. It was, you know, kind of in the same grouping of, you know, the Galgos of the world, which plays heavily into the, you know, scenes in this movie, but also, um, you know, Tempest and, you know, those sorts of games, but Missile Command in particular, because uh, the production design of this movie, I would say heavily borrowed the aesthetic of Missile Command, maybe if not outright. Oh yeah. It. Um, so if you remember that early uh, video game, Missile Command, maybe that's going to be one of our clues. In fact, uh, for this episode is a Missile Command video game. I think that would be a good one. So you'll see it on our Instagram site. So um, anyway, you wanted to mention about uh, your uh, history with a computer early days here? Uh, yeah, I just mentioned that in this. I mean, I kind of misconstrued this section. I thought it was personal stuff. So I, I didn't know anything about any of this stuff. Uh, you know, before 1980, I had no history with personal computers whatsoever. I never had any interest in it. Uh, I wanted to be a writer. 
Uh, when I grew up, I know uh, technical anything. So our, our early history is very different. But we'll talk about that more when we get to the 80s, which I think is the next uh, section, right? Yep. So uh, once you cross 1980, a lot of things changed pretty drastically for those who weren't around. You had the really the birth of the PC revolution. So you had very early uh, PCs that people uh, could uh, get to. Uh, they were somewhat affordable, although certainly not cheap. Um, but, you know, things like the the TRS-80, the Radio Shack one, um, Apple IIs came out. Commodore 64, that. right? Commodore Which 64. Up to your monitor and used a cassette tape as the uh, kind yep. of disc, right? Yeah. Early Apples had the same uh, thing with the cassette tape to store uh, your data, the early Apple IIs. Um, the, uh, there was, uh, an Atom computer. I don't know if you remember that one. Um, the, uh, they had, let's see, um, IBM PCs obviously came out at, around that time. Um, so the main thing just to concentrate on here were that these, again, were accessible to people. More people were getting these and you started to develop a, a culture, uh, around, uh, having these things. Um, and also video games were, were kind of on the rise. We'll talk about that a lot because there's a lot of crossover between uh, video games and this movie. And the plot of the movie, in fact, is heavily based on, on video games and that culture. But I wanted to call out um, a couple, again, things that I think heavily influenced the style of, of this film and the interactions that Lightman has with, with uh, Joshua, the, you know, the Whopper computer system, text-based adventure games like Zork. Um, that were popular. There were, there were uh, games on uh, Unix systems and universities that were even more primitive. Uh, I never really played them, um, but I, 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 do, I knew people who did. And then there was one text-based adventure game that was graphic, but you kind of manipulated the game through text on Apple IIe, which I'll talk about um, in a second, called Sherwood Forest, which was one of my favorite games uh, as a kid. So um, in terms of like... A, Personal history, though, I, I'll, I'll get into this a little bit. Um, I got an Apple IIe computer not long after they came out and was 100% obsessed with it. Um, full nerd programming, all the games um, that, that I got at that point and, and traded with my friends. That could be a whole, epi whole episode about that. I had a, a, a modem. I, I initially had a 300 baud modem. I eventually got a Hayes micro modem 1200 baud. Um, at one point, not right away, I think a couple of years later, I got something called the Echo 2 Speech Synthesizer, which did exactly what uh, Lightman's speech uh, synthesizers did in, in the War Games movie. It sounded just like that, maybe not quite as good, um, quite as smooth, but um, you could type in text and it would read it. And this was in the early 80s. And it was pretty good. It, it was, uh, you know, kind of had the Stephen Hawking, you know, computer voice thing going for it. It wasn't quite as good, obviously, or, or as elegant, but it was fucking amazing. And I love that thing. And I played around with it uh, a lot. So that's crazy because like, what year did you get that thing? Cause I, in the movie, they specifically say that they, they didn't use a speech synthesizer, right. To do the vote, to do that voice. They yeah. basically said it wasn't actually there. The technology wasn't there. Now they could have been wrong. I mean, they're they're wrong about a few things as far as what was available and what could be done. But but the way they did that was they had the actor John Wood read words like read a sentence 
word for word uh, backwards. So he'd read the words backwards so that his speech was kind of halted and clipped. And then they played it. I don't know how they did the effect of like the computerized voice, but they actually played it through a thing and that's how they got it. And it's really creepy and kind of captures what you would want from that kind of thing. But it's interesting because they actually specifically say that it wasn't available yet. So, yeah, well, this must have been, I would say, 83, 84. Um, so you can look it up online. Uh, yeah. It's called the Echo 2 uh, Speech uh, Synthesizer. It was a plug-in card for the Apple II. Uh, it was a full slot, you know, kind of card. Um, and it was it was fucking amazing. So um, we can look it up. Uh, maybe we'll post in a show notes about what year that was. But it had to have been in around the Around yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. it might have been right after then, or it might have been around, and maybe it wasn't sufficient for what they needed yeah, to do. Yeah, it wasn't, certainly it wasn't as elegant and smooth and, and capable uh, as what was portrayed in the movie, but right. it's, it's still, it was still great, and I, and I loved it. Um, the uh, I, Around this time when I had this computer and had the modem, there's very an early Bolton board scene. Um, again, children today have no idea what this is, but essentially you'd call these numbers and people would be running these kind of text-based uh, kind of bulletin board systems on their um, PCs, essentially. And you could call in and interact with people and post messages and, and things like that. And a lot of these were used for, you know, trading kind of hacking uh, tips and tricks and, you know, things like that. There certainly was very strict limitations in terms of just the speed of these things was so slow you weren't downloading huge games or anything like that, but it was just a lot of kind of, you know, people would go by different handles and it was just, again, emblematic of this really early kind of scene um, that would eventually obviously flourish much uh, bigger when we get into the internet era. But these were huge. You you had these list of these numbers and they would they'd come and go and there were popular ones around the local area where I lived. Uh, I remember one in particular that was run by this guy who's kind of a nerd and um, people kind of made fun of them at the same time that they respected him. This guy, it was this Omniboard was the name of it. It was in the San Fernando Valley. Um, but uh, there were a lot of other ones that were kind of more underground and they have, you know, the usual bad behaviors on it from teenage boys and, and things like that. Um, the other thing that I wanted to talk about about this early scene. So I was, you know, you know, 12, 13 years old at this time and hanging around, I started meeting people who were part of this scene. You know, some of them we'd meet up actually. I, I know this is a weird concept, but before the internet, all the people who are calling into the, the bulletin boards all lived in your local area because for the most part, you didn't have to have to pay for long distance calls. So you'd call these local numbers in your, in your local area code and everyone who'd called them for the most part were around the area that you live. So I remember meeting up with, with some of these, you know, severe nerds, uh, even standard nerds, uh, as, as one might say. And uh, the weird thing was, is, yeah, there's a lot of kind of teenage boys, almost all boys. Um, I don't even remember any girls around. And they were smart to stay away from this crew. But um, there were older dudes who were part of this, too. And not really old, but like, I would say in their 20s um, and maybe even into early 30s who were part of this scene and really were part of all this early kind of quote hacking, very uh, reminiscent of Jim and Malvin from War Games. And when we get to that scene, I'll talk about that because they were like perfectly cast archetypes 
Um, I mean, I, I knew these dudes. As soon as I saw them in a movie, like, oh, yeah, that's just like so-and-so and so-and-so. And the, the interesting thing about these guys is they had jobs in the in their early computer industry. So, um, you know, they were putting their skills uh, to, to use. They were making good money. Um, and they had money. So they could buy all the new gadgets that all the rest of us were just drooling over. Um, so, the, you know, the, and they would, you know, kind of lord that over everyone. Hey, I just picked up this new you know, so-and-so thing. One of the things I, I did want to mention about the personal computer uh, pieces is Lightman's computer was an MSI uh, uh, 1380 or something like that. I should probably- I have it listed it. later in the in the show no- yeah. uh, notes. We'll talk about it when we get to that, but- It certainly yeah. was not a personal computer. It was very expensive. Nobody had those unless you were like a professional- engineer or somebody in the early computer industry who had a reason to have one of those but those that his computer i wouldn't uh characterize as being part of the pc revolution if that makes sense either right i mean the early computers in the 70s they were these kits right you had to build it basically and then that's when you know apple kind of changed everything and then ibm kind of followed them yeah and then the commodore and yeah the commodore trs yeah all that stuff um, basic programming. Speaking of basic programming, there was one dude who I knew who's older. He's probably should have been in college. I think he just lived at his mom's house. One of those types. Um, I would say in his mom's basement, but this is LA. No one had basements. Um, he, uh, knew he, I, he worked off and on as a contractor for some company that made Apple software. I forget what it was. It wasn't a game. It was something else. It might've been some kind of scientific program or something. Maybe it was the video projection program that they used uh, for, you know, controlling all the uh, Crystal Palace NORAD screens, which we'll get into in the making. But um, he knew assembly language for the Apple II really well, and he could do all sorts of magic. And he was sort of a wizard to us because we were all trying to learn cool things that you could do beyond just like we had mastered basic uh, you know, the Apple basic, it, it was, I mean, I was so good at it at some point. I was just bored by it. Like I could do everything that that's possible to do. I thought, I mean, I was probably not really, but, but this guy knew assembly language and he could do things that you couldn't do in basic. And so he would always, you know, kind of lord that over and say, Hey, do you know how to do this? And be like, no, show us dude. You know, that kind of stuff. It, it, this guy was like a, you know, 300 pound dude, uh, kind of a, and certainly an incel type, uh, but he he knew Apple II assembly language. We thought he was cool. Um, and as far as hacking goes, in the early days, most of my friends and I, we would call, we, we were like get into light trouble. We certainly didn't do anything that would was on the level of uh, anything Lightman did, nor the kind of people who Clifford Stoll encountered in the Cuckoo's Egg story, which we'll, we'll talk about in, in a little bit. But I did have some friends who were trying to get information on this, just one company, I forget the name of it. And they had modems, they had a bank of modems. And we would call these modems and like, it was kind of like uh, Lightman trying to get onto some of these systems where it would ask you for your, your password, username, password. And we could never get on, we didn't know what it was and we were trying to hack it and we couldn't do it. And this is after war games and we're like, hey, we should do research and try to figure out, you know, what the password mm-hmm. is. It was pretty amusing. And, and these two dudes that I knew decided they were going to go dumpster diving. Do you know what that is, Slip? Uh, no. 
It's the idea where you would go to the business, the headquarters, and go into the dumpsters where they oh, throw okay. out all so their it's stuff. actually it's actually dumpster diving. It's actually dumpster diving yeah, and, look, yeah. and look for papers or things that they would throw out to give clues on um, you know what these systems were about or how to get into them. So these guys did that a couple times. They didn't find anything other than get a bunch of garbage on them, which in retrospect, fucking hilarious. Uh, we never did get into those computers. I'm sure it was really completely uninteresting when, if we were able to. Um, but most people were into, you know, trying to find stuff like games, right? And so the whole idea that Lightman is not trying to find a military computer, he's trying to find uh, games, is 100% accurate, 100% correct, and something this kid absolutely uh, would have been doing. So anyway, let's talk about your early history here. Okay, so I had no interest in this stuff beyond just video games at first. Um, you know, I, I don't remember the first video game I played, but I do remember my first interaction with any kind of computer, which was my Uncle Jerry actually worked. He was kind of an executive at Hewlett Packard, and he had this computer with a tiny screen. And I learned that it's in basically an HP Series 80 called the HP 85A. And if you look at this thing, it's a tiny, tiny keyboard with a little screen. It's it's like looks like a little typewriter and it's got a tiny screen in the corner. And he had this game called Star Trek. And it was a really primitive, mostly textual game. And I played that a little bit. And that was like, I think the game was created in like the early 70s. So it was even pre-Pong, but it was like Pong level, right? I, I might have played Pong at some point. I don't remember. My first real exposure to video games was at the 7-Eleven in fourth grade. We'd go, we'd play Asteroids. Um, I loved Galaga. I still love Galaga. It's a great game. And, and Star Castle, another one called Star Castle. That was really primitive graphics like Asteroids. But that was my real exposure. And I just was not a math person or anything. I just read a lot and I wanted to write. I was always really good at English. And I was pretty good at math, but I wasn't great. But around eighth grade, I had a uh, seventh grade, I had this really great teacher named Mr. Stava. He was totally like this beatnik looking dude. He was great. And I had taken this qualifying exam to get into algebra the next year. So most people would go pre-algebra in eighth grade and then go to algebra in high school. I went to algebra in eighth grade and I sucked. Like I sucked. I, I was not, I was overwhelmed. It was too hard for me. And it was funny. I had this friend, Joe. Joe's probably the smartest friend I know. He's a physicist with the Navy, right? You know, he's been with the Naval Research Laboratory inventing the army of like the 22nd century or whatever he does with lasers and shit. He's really smart. Um, and he was in the class and he, of course, aced it. You know, he was just good at math. I was never that great. I was okay. You know, and I just, I got in over my head. It was too hard for me. And I, I think if I had applied, realized that doing hard stuff is part of learning at the time, because English was so easy for me. I would just get yeah. A's and, you know, but math, it just, I didn't have like this brilliant aptitude. I was okay. And I think if I just would have realized it's okay to struggle and that's how you should, how you get better. Cause eventually I would learn this lesson. Right. Um, but anyway, so I failed to qualify for geometry in ninth grade. So he went on to geometry. He eventually would pass the calculus AP, get a five. He's really smart. Um, and uh, I went into this weird intermediary class past algebra called advanced algebra. And advanced algebra was basically some concepts of algebra, some concepts of geometry, some concepts of algebra too, but basic programming. It was like 50% basic programming. Yeah. And man, I really wish I could go back in time and tell myself, dude, 
you need to learn this. You would, you, you would actually probably be pretty good at it if you gave yourself a chance to struggle with the hard stuff and just get through the hoop. Um, it's so ironic to me because of what I do now in my job uh, that I just didn't have any interest. And I, I didn't even try and I struggled to even understand the concept. And it was funny because I pretty much cheated. Uh, the last assignment was to write a payroll program. And uh, I pretty much got my friend Joe on his Commodore 64 to write it. And he was completely stoned at the time. He was smoking <laughs> weed and he wrote this program for me. And the teacher was like, oh yeah, looking at the printout, this looks good, but it didn't work. Uh, it didn't actually work. There was a bug in it somewhere. Yeah. Uh, probably, maybe I typed it wrong, you know, or maybe Joe fucked up because he was stoned. But anyway, he was super into programming from day one. Yep. And when he found out I eventually did this as a living, he was shocked because I was so bad back then. Um, you know, it's kind of funny. But I remember I had this other friend, Adam Clay, uh, who was kind of a friend of me because I was an asshole in junior high. And me and my friend Ernie, who I eventually realized Ernie was a toxic person and wasn't friends with him. We called him Madam Gay. That was our <laughs> joke. Uh, how clever, right? Um, and uh but Adam Clay was really smart and he was, he was like in a, he was doing this weird uh, study with one of the teachers at the high school that wasn't even an official class in this language called Pascal. And he actually did Turbo Pascal, which I think is an object oriented version of Pascal. I'm not sure what it is. If you remember Pascal, the I language. Do. Yeah. Um, They'd use it to teach uh, programming in, in universities and schools. Yeah. In the eighties, it was kind of the way you learn programming, right? I mean, I think yeah. that was one of the classes before they just threw you into C plus plus or, or, you know, even lower level shit, but, but, but at any rate, so in high school, that was about my flirtation with computers. Um, you know, I was a little haunted by control data Institute, to be honest, because I think I knew that this was going to be the thing to do. You know, yeah. it, it was just made, as you could see in the eighties, like Jeff was saying, it was just kind of taking over. And, um, uh, at any rate, I'm just going to go into the future. Uh, my first roommate who, uh, his, he was a double major of art and computer science, which I think was just the smartest, probably the smartest kind of thing you could do. And he was fucking really smart. And, but I remember he mostly just wanted to play this strategy game called empire he would just go play this thing in the Unix labs. And I remember seeing the Unix for Luddites. They had this thing uh, where you could learn Unix and people would just go play on these Unix systems. And he was just in there constantly. I don't even know if he studied. He didn't seem to have to. He was just one of these really smart dudes. Um, but it was funny because, um, and then I met Jeff, who was already into computers. Jeff already had like Macs and stuff. And and I remember I would mock your dot matrix papers because I thought dot matrix looked so shitty. Yeah, they but, did, but hey. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, when we moved to San Francisco, I remember you being on Prodigy all the time, yeah. you know, the, uh, the Prodigy network. And I was kind of like, this is kind of interesting. I was just kind of whatever. And I remember my cousin Greg was really into the internet. And he was like, the internet is fun, but it's just a fad. And I always talk to him about that, that quote. It's really funny. Um, but anyway, my big turning point was when I saw the World Wide Web in 1995. And I saw these weird, you know, clunky Java applets and, and goofy like pages, but I just immediately was like blown away by this whole concept. Um, I, I know the web had been around since 91. I'm sure Jeff saw it before I did. I did not even see it until 95, but a trip to Seattle completely changed my life. Completely changed my whole trajectory. I eventually would do you this saw work. Pearl Jam. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's all Pearl Jam. No, I I just got into computers, and it's been my my career. And it's just so weird to, um, you know, 
read Cuckoo's Egg and I should also talk about that. When I met my wife, I used a lot of her mother's books to learn stuff. She had these old Pearl books and Unix books. She had Unix books from Berkeley, Unix from the 80s that would have been the same books that Cliff Stoll was reading in The Cuckoo's Egg. So it's eventually became my life. And it's just so weird to think about that from my early beginnings. But um, that's, you know, so I gave a longer thing and you can talk more about that if you want to, because, you know, obviously it's your life too. Um, And, uh, but I also want to talk about how it felt to be in the 80s with this nuclear paranoia, because this is a film uh, that is very much about that as well, about the end of the world and right and uh, U.S. kind of government officials and the whole idea of nuclear war being a winnable thing, which was a common theory at the time. You know, you had uh, you obviously had the conflicting views of Robert Oppenheimer, who was responsible for the first nuclear, uh, you know, uh, invention of the nuclear miss bomb and stuff and who regretted it uh because he knew that it was kind of a checkmate a kind of stalemate uh and there was no way to win and then you had this guy edward teller who was another scientist who believed it was winnable and he was kind of reagan's darling at this time so you had this you had this whole concept but at the time there were tons of movies and stuff i remember seeing the movie the day after the tv movie and just being fucking shocked by it it actually shows the bomb going off and people being fucking dis- just disintegrated yeah um, on that. tv with primitive effects right and it came out the same year and then, of course, you know, Iron Maiden uh, and, and, of course, you have The Watchmen, right, was a huge influence to us. We're going to be doing that in a future episode, I can tell you that. Um, and that had this whole foreboding and mutually assured destruction and talked about the Doomsday Clock. Obviously, Iron Maiden has a great song, Two Minutes to Midnight, that's all about the Doomsday Clock. And with the Doomsday Clock now at 90 seconds, it seems, uh, at, you know, apt to talk about this as well. So we're not out of the woods, even though it was different because of the Cold War. So that's kind of what I wanted to say, too. Do you remember thinking about this as a kid? Like, uh, Yeah, but I was never as sort of haunted by it for whatever reason. I, I'm not sure why it was never like a, a, a like an imminent fear or anything like that uh, for me. Um, one thing that I, I just wanted to go back and talk about some of the computer stuff is in college, you know, I, I'll say I was a STEM major, you know, and so like a lot of the uh, technical classes and stuff that I had, um, you know, I did some stuff on my PC, but I had to use, some, you know, our, our Unix systems at our university quite a bit. Um, and early on, there was a, a very rapidly growing community of people who were always on these things there's like a, you know, people who know Unix, there's a talk program, which is like an early chat kind of uh, thing, uh, kind of similar, eh, kind of similar to Slack, something like that, not exactly the same. But there was like people who would just spent hours and hours and hours and hours on these things, playing games, yeah. um, text-based games. These are all text-based games or, or doing all sorts of stuff, um, hacking around on on Unix stuff. I had a friend, I forget it, I forget his, uh, I forget his name now. This guy uh, who was uh, kind of the computer wizard, uh, uh, you know, that everyone knew locally, you know, at the university, um, really just a smart, smart guy. And he knew all these network computer stuff. So um, in the book, The Cuckoo's Egg, you know, uh, Cliff Stoll talks a lot about um, the early sort of networks of different computer systems that were um, all connected to university systems the, the mill net, the military systems that were kind of loosely connected to systems. Um, this is especially true for uh, the University of California, uh, you know, 
system, right? That that uh, that we were a part of. So the um, at any rate, I, I just remember just kind of I was not I kind of got out of programming for a while. Um, just doing some other things, you know, in, in the music and 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 uh, other stuff, and just kind of getting back into it in college a little bit. And and I had a class where we had to write programs in C, um, it, you know, things like that. So anyway, that's uh, kind of the the story there. Yeah, we should talk about you know what's funny about this movie too is it's 1983. That's about the time ARPANET was around, uh, first around, and and you know they had these other networks, but that ARPANET was the basis for the internet that we have now. And I think it's funny that you know and, and Cuckoo's Egg is directly related to this interconnectivity and the birth of this and how yeah. this changed people's concept of what a security is and what violation is, which we'll be talking about during this film. But let's talk about the zeitgeist of this movie. So obviously early computer, we talked about the zeitgeist just now, right? Our personal histories, the whole PC revolution, uh, you know, early networking and computers, modems, you know, uh, this was all uh, video game culture to a certain extent. This was all happening at this time, right? The Atari being this major company, Apple being this major, you know, uh, company with, you know, magazine covers of Steve Jobs and uh, Steve Wozniak on everywhere. And, um, you know, obviously Bill Gates was just getting started. He would, you know, have more of a rise in the 90s uh, to prominence. But you had like things changing. Right. And that was part of the zeitgeist. But there's also movies that influenced this. Um, And uh, obviously the big one, uh, especially with the kind of computer gone rampant the classic one is Hal, right from 2001 a space odyssey where you know Hal starts basically murdering the astronauts it's basically artificial intelligence gone insane um and it's actually probably the character with the most personality in the film which is really interesting uh you know a lot of the characters in in 2001 space odyssey are are Odyssey are purposefully kind of bland to show that this computer is actually the one with the most personality. Um, you know, we mentioned this one in our, this is a very light one. Uh, we mentioned this is in our Escape from New York episode, the computer wore tennis shoes. Yeah. Uh, this is actually a case where um, Kurt Russell actually becomes kind of human computer with ability. So it's not directly related, but it's a little bit of the early flirtation with computers and movies. Now, one that was really interesting that was actually a direct influence on the writers of War Games was this 19, obscure 1970 film called Colossus, the Forbin Project. Um, it's funny, one of the little uh, kind of uh, supporting roles is played by Marion Ross uh, from Happy Days, which oh, is interesting. Wow. Funny. But it's basically about uh, a super intelligent computer the United States government builds to run war simulations, just like war games and there's another one in in the soviet union and these two computers talk to each other and basically take over the entire world um and eventually the end of the movie is that colossus rules the world and colossus basically tells the lead of i forget the actor's name but he was on uh, young and the restless as victor uh the character and young and the restless but he basically tell him that yeah you're going to accept the fact that your life is going to be great because I'm ruling things. And that's the dark ending of that film. I've never seen it, but I would totally see that movie. Another one is more of a horror film starring Julie Christie. This is Demon Seed where she's impregnated (laughs) by a computer. Pretty, pretty ludicrous, but you know, 
Uh, another one that was around this time that I think we're going to talk a little bit about when we talk about evaluations is Tron. Um, obviously, Tron is about a super intelligent uh, computer. Um, and uh, it's you know interesting to compare the two and how they deal with that idea. Um, and then Blade Runner obviously is more about the future in general, but it's about replicants, which are kind of intelligent artificial life. Uh, Brainstorm was another movie that came out in 1983 that was about more like about virtual reality than anything else, primitive virtual reality. Um, Electric Dreams is an interesting one. This is kind of a cool little movie. Uh, that's about a computer that falls in love with the main character. And it's really uh, kind of a dark film where the computer kind of sabotages his girlfriends and stuff. It's it's really cool. Um, and then, of course, we got to talk about, I just have to mention this because I talked about this with Jeff, uh, Hackers, the, the 1995 film. Obviously, this is after War Games. But I think when you when you talk about whether War Games holds up, you got to mention stuff like Hackers uh, because of, uh, and I think Jeff has a lot to say about this. We'll bring this up later. Yeah. Now the other zeitgeist here, as far as movie inf influences is, you know, about nuclear apocalypse, nuclear war, as I mentioned, you know, obviously this, uh, one of the first movies on the beach in the late fifties is about a post-apocalyptic Australia, seven days in May about a military coup where the government wants to start a nuclear war kind of based loosely around the whole Cuban missile crisis and actually written by Rod Serling. Um, Fail safe is another one from 1964. Uh, obviously the one that's uh, Siskel called out again, another Kubrick film, Dr. Strangelove, right? There's tons Great. of war room scenes. Uh, you know, this is a brilliant film uh, satire and we'll talk about it a little bit because of the original idea for war games, the original conception of a certain character kind of changed because of this influence of this film. Uh, there's another great documentary called The Atomic Cafe that kind of it plays a lot of the 50s kind of student films. You know, the whole duck and cover uh, yep. canard, right? When the 50s, yeah. they're like, get under a duck desk and cover yeah. as if that's going to stop you from dying in a nuclear attack. Um and then I mentioned the day after. This was absolutely chilling. There's other ones too. There's a British one called Threads that actually came out after uh, War Games. There's there's a bunch of films around nuclear uh, annihilation and uh, you know the whole threat of World War II, World War Three. Uh, so this is uh, even Terminator Two is another one, right? Um, so uh, let's go into the history and making of uh, this actual film. Yeah, so the development for this movie began in 79. The two guys behind it were named Walter Parks and Lawrence Lasker. Um, Lasker was a, a child of people in show business, which and his parents were friends with uh, Reagan, and that comes into the story a little bit later, so we'll get into that. But they developed a script uh, called The Genius, and the idea was this, uh, you know, a dying scientist and the only uh, person in the world who understands him, a rebellious kid who's too smart for his own good kind of thing. It was inspired uh, by a television spe a special that uh, Lasker saw by, uh, presented by Peter Yusinov about uh, geniuses, including Stephen Hawking. And he thought that the idea of Hawking and the predicament that he was in with his condition was fascinating. He was working on a unified you know, field theory, trying to un uh, unify gravity with the other forces. Um, which he did not do. No one has to date. This is the quantum gravity stuff. Another time. Love to talk about this another time. But anyway, um, 
the predicament that he might be able to you know solve this problem but not be able to communicate the solution was the idea and um that Lasker found interesting and maybe he could communicate uh to the kids somehow and you know turn that into a movie um the idea of co- computers and hacking uh, really wasn't even present uh in this in this film at all right so so what's interesting about this is when they wanted to meet with Stephen Hawking they said, we want to meet with you. They wanted to talk to him about this idea. And he just said, yeah, that's fine if you want to talk about my theories. But if you want to talk about my affliction, I'm not interested. And they were really mainly interested in the whole affliction, right? right. The whole idea that this character being a wheelchair, which is interesting because even when it switched to war games, uh, they still kind of had this idea of the character being disabled and being in a wheelchair. But when they thought about the idea of having the character in a wheelchair in the in NORAD, in the war room, this was too much like Peter Sellers' character in Strangelove. So they didn't want people to think of Dr. Strangelove when they thought of the war room, even though, you know, in, in such an explicit way, like it would kind of take people out of the movie. So they eventually changed this idea of the wheelchair. Anyway. Yeah, yeah no, that makes sense. Anyway, this movie, The Genius, uh, started transforming into war games that, that you we all know and love. When Parks and Lasker met this guy, Peter Schwartz, who worked at uh, Stanford Research Institute, SRI, which is a military contractor, did a lot of uh, you know computer stuff, still does, I think, or whatever it became. Um, there, the, this guy, Peter Schwartz, was basically saying, hey, telling these guys that there's a subculture about these really bright kids um, who are really into computers, who would kind of now be known as hackers and, and computer nerds. But um, he started making, short. started making the connection uh, for uh, Parks and Alaska between youth, you know, he's on men mostly, boys, uh, computers, uh, gaming, and the military, all this kind of stuff. And uh, they also met with this uh, computer security guy named Willis Ware of Rand, another military contractor, who uh, assured them that even secure military computers would have remote access enabled um, to let people work uh, from other locations or on the weekends, that kind of stuff. And it started percolating this idea, you know, for, for the writers. So, yeah. So, so one thing is there is a line by David, the character of David Lightman in war games later, he says, I don't believe that any system is completely secure. And what's interesting though, is that a lot of these military, so what Rand also, another interesting thing that the guy from Rand provided was a lot of the ideas for the scenarios that, that are kind of played at the end of the film in the final sequence where they're talking about like the different, like Russia attacks this area or, you know, Middle East attack first, all these different Pan ideas. hits you. No, that's right, right, different. right, right. Exactly. Um, so, but it, what was interesting too, is talking about the, um, cuckoo's egg a little bit, is this whole idea that, um, you know, some systems were left insecure, the idea that when people would get these new operating systems, they wouldn't uh, actually uh, change the passwords of these default accounts that were included as part of the system. So this was a way for people to get into these systems and stuff like that. So I think that's what he was talking about. But then the other idea was a lot of the military thought these were secure because uh, their most classified information was stored on computers that were not connected. Um, but as we will see, uh, you know, that that idea is kind of uh, iffy. Right. I, I think um, we'll we'll probably talk about that more as we bring up more of the, the real life stuff that happened in Cuckoo's Egg as we talk about the film. Yeah. The, the other uh, ask, a couple things just to mention 
the idea that you know these you know uh, Unix systems or these uh, Vax systems from uh, digital equipment um, would come with these uh, you know admin accounts, these system operator accounts with default passwords that wouldn't get changed. It still happens today, right? Yeah. So you have all sorts of devices connected, your your uh, routers, your Internet of Things stuff, your security cameras. That's why I say change your default passwords because. Um, that's how most people break into things. They just go to the, oh, admin, password admin, and no one ever changes it. And that was happening even back then. Um, the, the other thing, too, you mentioned Cuckoo's Egg, you know, when Cliff Stoll would contact these system operators, uh, admins, for the systems that he knew his hacker that he was tracing was breaking into, the first response from a lot of these guys would be like, no, no, it can't be. Our system is secure. You know, yeah, like they, yeah, they wouldn't even they wouldn't even like acknowledge that this was possible, which is like the first error that you could possibly make. And something Lightman says, the quote that you mentioned, uh, I don't believe any system is completely secure. His view of security of Lightman, this kid in the movie, is way more sophisticated than right. these professional because there is no such thing as a completely secure system. He's 100 percent right. Still to this day, there's no such thing as a completely secure system. So. I thought that was interesting that this kid really had a more evolved concept than these experts, right? Yeah. We'll talk about that more as we get into the film, but it's amazing how that's still, like you said, it's if any statement stood the test of time, it's such an early time to figure that out, especially because networking was so new. I think that's part of why is that they didn't conceive of, especially kids being able to do this stuff. Like no kid is going to, you know, it was just inconceivable to them, right? Exactly. That was the general military response. Is like, oh, war games couldn't happen because no kid yeah. could get in the system. And it's like, well, okay. Um, anyway. Or you had, you know, contractors who said, oh, we developed a secure operating system, so it must be secure because we say right. it is and we're experts. It's like, you know, these just, you know, complex systems always exceed the the capabilities um, and the, the problem space that uh, people think as a, we get into that anyway. Um, anyway, the, the the whole idea, the original Whopper War Operation Plan Response—that's the name of the computer in the movie. Early on, it was called Uncle Ollie or Omnipresent Laser Interceptor, uh, kind of a space-based defensive laser run by a program. Remember, this is the early day of Star, early days of Star SDI, Wars. SDI, yeah, SDI stuff. Um, but the idea was thrown away because it was too speculative. Uh, the director John Baden. Uh, coined the phrase uh, Whopper, feeling that the name of NORAD's um, single integrated operational plan was boring. PSYOP um, was the actual name of it, and it told you nothing. Then Whopper kind of played off the well, Whopper hamburger, hamburger, and you know, a sound like a whopping sound, like whop, like something impressive. Uh, maybe not the greatest, you know, stroke of genius there, but nevertheless. So what's the Whopper stand? It's war operation planned planning, response. Planned response. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's funny as hell. Yeah. Whopper. Yeah. Exactly. It's a big Whopper. Yeah. Like like it's it's a Whopper. It's a Whopper. Oh uh, yeah. It's a big one. Um, the computer seen in the film was a prop. Obviously, it was created in Culver City. Um, that uh, he had the guy the guy who uh, designed it. This guy Jeff uh, Kirkland based it on pictures of early computers, metal furniture, cabinets uh, from the U.S. military in the 40s and 50s. Um, the art director, uh, Angelo Graham, turned these uh, 
into drawing concepts. And then they built this computer with the lights and the blinking lights. And it was actually run by Apple II, all those blinking lights. Um, and uh, weirdly, you know, after the movie, they, they completely uh, broke up the whole computer for scrap, um, which, you know, that would have been an amazing prop to be able to take home the Whopper computer huh, and have in your, in your basement. But uh, the funny thing about it is some of the people who were responsible for building this thing um, didn't really necessarily understand computers because in, in uh, the art director or set directors, you'll notice in certain scenes where they have this very sophisticated computer where there's a bunch of like pliers sitting around on the top of it, like you're going to do something <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> with pliers. It's so stupid. But nevertheless, and, and there's another scene uh, where some technician is walking around with a clipboard looking at all the blinking lights going, oh, something's going on here. It's like, it's, so, it's such a trope, the blinking lights. It's like nobody knows anything from a bunch of blinking lights at this point in computer history. People would be logging onto a terminal, looking at various you know trace programs and log programs, trying to figure out what was going on, which, by the way, they did in other scenes. So the whole idea that they're going to be watching these blinking lights is going, oh, did you see that one? That one turned on and off. It kind of reminds me of Richmond in the IT crowd. Yeah, show I think I think this is, a again, a choice because they're dealing with a lay audience, you know, especially with some of the uh, concepts in this film are completely new to people in 1983. And so it's very Star Trek, this Whopper. It looks... It doesn't look like any computer ever really looked, but it's visually interesting to look at and kind of has a a character. It's kind of like that one eye that Hal has in uh, 2001. Yeah, you know, it's right. it's meant to be kind of a visual cue that, hey, this is this thing is really sophisticated and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, that was the idea. So anyway, the character of Lightman was was partly modeled on this guy named David Scott Lewis. Uh, kind of an early hacker that the writers uh, had met. Uh, Falcon was inspired by Stephen Hawking, as we talked about. Um, and they, the idea for how this character would look was based off of a guy you may have heard of, a musician of some repute. Uh, who was that, Slip? John Lennon. So they were originally going to have him play the part. Yeah. They were considerate, which would have been fucking amazing. I, yeah. I mean, I don't know how great of an actor, but I could see him, although... John Wood is hard to beat here. I, yeah. I think they got the right guy, but it's really sad just because he was, you know, obviously while the script was in development, he was murdered. Yeah. Um, but it would have been an interesting thing for him to do for sure. Uh, you know, I would have been into that in a way. Although, again, they got a really good guy to play him. Um, he's absolutely great in the film. Agreed. Uh, General Berenger, who's played by Barry Corbin, we'll talk about more later was based on this guy, James Hardinger, who is the commander-in-chief of NORAD. And Parker and Lasker went to go meet him and visit the base. And um, it, just like Berenger, he, he liked keeping humans in the loop kind of thing, but he's kind of a good old boy. And when you know he found out that these guys were writing a movie, he uh, wanted to drink with them on the base and tell them all about, you know, tell them, the writers, all about himself, that kind of thing, uh, which is kind of amusing. Uh, the other thing I just wanted to call out here is NORAD is an actual place. It's in Colorado Springs, Cheyenne Mountain. Um, the Crystal Palace, which was the kind of war room with all the screens, it does exist. Um, it's not used for the same purposes anymore. It was retired, I think, in the early 2000s. But it's much, much smaller than um, in the movie, as you might imagine. 
Um, it's built into the side of a mountain. It, it's just a couple of acres. The whole entire operation's deep into this mountain. Um, and their tech that they had at the time when this movie was made was far inferior to the um, to the uh, War Games movie. They had small screens. They were black and white. Um, their 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 uh, accommodations in there were certainly nowhere close to being as uh, voluminous. Uh, uh, voluminous. What's the word? I can't talk today. Voluminous. Uh, voluminous. That's the word. Maybe I'll, I'll have to edit that because uh, that makes me sound like an idiot. Uh, so. Anyway, it was just as much smaller uh, in, in uh, square footage. So anyway, let's talk about the filming and the, and the background. Yeah, I think you should edit that out because Lord knows I've never made any mistakes or flubbed any words on this podcast. Yeah. Uh, I, I think about when I was talking about, we were talking about 12 Tone and I actually said Schopenhauer, which yeah. is the philosopher. Yeah. <laughs> um, at any rate, uh, I think I met you Stockhausen or... You, you uh, met Schoenberg. Is what Schoenberg or Stockhausen or one of those dudes. See, don't even know now. At any rate, all right, let's talk a little bit about the filming and the background of some of the principles here. So uh, the first director hired was director Martin Brest, and he was mainly known... He had only done two films, one a student film called Hot Dogs for Gauguin when he was at NYU featuring and then unknown Danny DeVito. Um, and then another film called Going in Style, which featured George Burns and Art Carney. And um, this was a film about some old retired gangsters kind of doing another bank robbery, uh, uh, you know, kind of their last uh, heist. And this was actually a really big hit. So he was kind of considered a, a hot director at the time to get. Um, he had immediately seen the project differently than Lasker and Park. So they were fired. And he took the screenplay and rewrote most of it, right? Mm. And he created a much darker film out of it. So David Lightman actually is more evil as a character, much more nefarious and intent, intentional about breaking into the system. And then there is a World War III dream sequence where there are nuclear explosions and stuff. Um, he was dismissed by the studio after twelve only 12 days of shooting. They didn't like the dour tone, you know, and, and only some of the stuff he he had shot was kept in, including a phone booth scene, which, which is kind of an homage to the phone freaking a bit. So they brought in director John Badham, who was a television director in the early 70s. He directed episodes of Night Gallery, which we mentioned on our Twilight Zone, episode 39. Go ahead and listen to it. Uh, Canon, the show Canon uh, and Streets of San Francisco. But then when he, he transitioned to movies in the mid-70s, directing uh, Bingo Long, Traveling All-Stars, and Motor King, starring Billy D. Williams and James Earl Jones. That sounds incredible. <laughs> yeah, I know. We went to, it's like a some kind of black exploitation, maybe, film, but it's it's all African-American cast. I've never That's heard of That's the greatest this title ever. It's a pretty crazy title, right? From there, he directed... Uh, his first major hit, which was Saturday Night Fever. And yeah. it's funny because he was kind of brought in to lighten the mood, but Saturday Night Fever is one of the bleakest, darkest films ever made. I mean, it's they're funny moments, but it's pretty fucking hardcore. Um, and then he directed the Frank Langella kind of sexy Dracula. I recently watched that like a year, I think six months ago, I watched it in our film club. Um, it's okay. Not the best Dracula. Uh, and then Blue Thunder in 1983, which is the same earlier that year. And the, it, the significance of Blue Thunder is it's also about uh, technology. It's a dark film about technology, more about uh, the kind of surveillance state, um, which is a, an interesting film. I haven't seen it since 1983, but 
you know, it's it's pretty interesting. But he basically dropped the new script that Brest had uh, worked on and went back to the latest draft of the Lasker and Park screenplay. Now, Ali Sheedy and Matthew Broderick, both of them were novices. They had uh, this was only their second film each. And they had been cast by Brest and they had actually liked working with him. And they were really paranoid that they would get fired because a lot of roles were replaced, including the general had been replaced, which we'll talk about more when we go into the cast. Um, So they were worried they were on the chopping block as well. But he basically created a kind of jokey atmosphere um, and lightened their mood and was able to get really good performances out of them. Now, one thing they also needed was in the transition from uh, when we talk about the plot summary, this will make more sense, but the transition of going from Falcon's uh, Island house back to NORAD, they needed sort of a transitional scene and they wanted a scene between uh, Jennifer and David Lightman, the two principals. Um, And so they commissioned Tom Mankiewicz, screenplay writer Tom Tom Mankiewicz to write this kind of scene. And I'm going to talk about the scene a lot because I think this is a really powerful scene in the film. A few more notable things. Um, Jeff mentioned that the uh, NORAD, real war war room at NORAD was much smaller than the one in the movie. Um, but they had this idea, the studio came to Batum with this idea of like, oh, we want to have these catwalks against the computer screens and have midgets walking on them <laughs> uh, to make it seem even bigger. And Batum's just like, look, I'm really fucking busy here. You know, you guys asked me to take over this film. Don't, don't be giving me stupid ideas. But they created these displays um, using computer graphics, and they did. Uh, it was basically the displays were created by Colin Cantwell on uh, an HP 984-5C, and it took seven months to produce these graphics. So these graphics were actually still graphics, as Jeff said, very based on maybe bay influenced by Missile Command, but they actually projected these. Uh, as kind of an animation, but each one was created in computers. So it's different than Escape from New York, uh, where they didn't use computers at all. Um, and uh, Paul and Cantwell actually won one of those Academy Scientific and Technical Awards that you never get to see on the show, that they just kind of run through for this amazing achievement. Another fun fact, there is a, a Jeep crash toward the end of the film when they're trying to get back to NORAD. This was actually not intended. Um, this was actually a real stunt uh, stunt driver had an accident uh, and crashed through the fence. So they decided to keep it and have them run into the NORAD as as the gate, the, the, the steel door is closing. And this was not what was intended. Originally, they were supposed to just drive up, but they just decided to go with it. Um, and then Arthur Rubenstein. Oh, do you I was just going to. Yeah, I was just going to say the the scene where they're running into the NORAD and they're trying to race against the door closing. Um, there's a lot of controversy around that because the editor thought that was ridiculous because it was too slow. And they just, and so there's a, actually a couple versions of it, one where the a closing is actually timed right, and the one in the theatrical release was, was uh, uh, preternaturally slow and to give them time to get in. And the TV version of it actually has the right timing. So they, uh, the editor and Baden actually made a deal that they could do it right in the, in the TV version. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, that scene is really weird because it does seem to kind of keep it, it kind of seems to go back backwards a little bit when it's closing. So I think the editor was right in that yeah. case. At any rate, um, 
the other interesting thing about this film is the music. The music changes tone quite a lot. I, I, I actually really, one of my least favorite things at the beginning of the film is the credits with a lot of the military scenes at NORAD have this kind of like marching band music. And it's really a weird tone for the film. The film kind of switches tone musically a lot, but a lot of the music is really effective, like especially David's theme, which is this kind of very computer synth theme that's really memorable and it's really used effectively. But then toward the end, it goes full John Williams. You know, it's very, very much like the Spielbergian action movie. And it's really, uh, I thought Arthur Rubinstein's music was really interesting, how he was able to switch gears uh, so frequently. And there's even kind of a melancholy harmonica that people really talk about when they remember the music of this, which is during the scenes when they're uh, around Falcon's Island. So as far as the reception to this film, we're going to get into the cast and crew next. But the reception, the movie was a relative, relatively low budget film, $12 million. Um, and it actually ended up making 10 times that, $124 million. Um, now, uh, I will say that it also got several Oscar nominations, including cinematography, William A. Fraker. Uh, the sound, this, we'll talk about the sound design of this film. It's really great, especially toward the end. Uh, Michael J. Cohut, Carlos Delarios, Aaron Rochin, Willie D. Burton were nominated for sound. And of course, the screenplay, which is incredible, was uh, not, Lawrence Lasker and William F. Parks were nominated. Let's talk about... Uh, Let's talk about uh, the cast a little bit. So obviously the star of the film is Matthew Broderick as David Lightman. As I mentioned, he'd only been in one film previously. He'd been in some TV guest guest spots on Lou Grant. Uh, maybe he was a uh, co-star with Terry Nunn. I honestly don't know. <laughs> um, and he was in a film, a little known film called Max Dugan Returns. Um, and then you have uh, Dabney Coleman as Dr. John McKittrick. He is a uh, kind of a weird character because he's, an authority figure, but also a computer expert. He's he's portrayed as being kind of Falk, Dr. Falcon's understudy. Yeah. Uh, he is known for being, a, it, it's interesting because this film, like I said, it switches tones a lot. And there's definitely an element of dark comedy and bringing in Dabney Coleman, who's mostly known as like a comedic villain. He He's in 9 to 5. He's the villain in 9 to 5 and also in Modern Problems. With Franklin Chevy. Hart in 9 to 5 was his character. Right, so. right. Yeah. Uh, by the way, Dabney Coleman, has there ever been a better movie asshole than Dabney Coleman? Yeah, he's great. He's always kind of a jerk and he's got these great, uh, you know, uh, comedic touches, but he's also really intimidating. Yeah. And I think he he's kind of perfect for the role. Now, the next major part, of course, is John Wood, who plays Stephen Falcon. And he is also the voice, as we mentioned, of of Joshua, of the Whopper. Um, he has mostly been a theater actor, um, and he is he, one of his most famous uh, theater roles was as Saliari, the role that F. Murray Abraham would play in the film version of Amadeus. He played in the stage production of Amadeus for years, and he adds a lot of gravitas to the film. And I think his scene that Siskel hated so much is one of the most powerful scenes in the movie. Jeff's going to talk about that quite a bit. Um, Ali Sheedy, man, I think she's so good in this movie. Um, I think both her and Matthew Broderick just bring it. Um, as Jennifer Mack, um, she was only had only been in one other film, which was Bad Boys with Sean Penn. Um, and she actually credits this film with getting her the part in Breakfast Club. And she's just fantastic. I mean, her chemistry with Matthew Broderick is something I'm going to talk about a lot. Um, we have the great Barry Corbin, the scene-stealing General Berenger. He was um, 
kind of based on General Hardinger, but again, the um, the original uh, Michael Ensign, who plays his assistant, was actually originally cast in this role. And it was John Batum who brought in Barry Corbin. And I think, again, it's John Batum lightening things up, right? taking some of the darkness of uh, that uh, Martin Brest had created and leaving it there, but also adding some dark comedy. And Barry Corbin's role as the tobacco-chewing uh General Jack Berenger is just, he just steals just about every scene he's in and he's really funny. I really think he should have been nominated for an Oscar for this. He was great. Yeah. Um, and then you have- He, he, he was, he, he's played a similar type of role in tone on you know, Northern Exposure um, as well. That oh TV yeah, show. I didn't even remember that. Yeah, I didn't he, even remember he's, that. He's a really good actor. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I'm gonna, I have to look at a screen here. Give me one second. Shit. Okay. And then you have, um, what's her name? Awanin Clay. See, I thought this name was wrong because I'm just like, this is such a Juanine, Juanine Clay as Patricia Healy. So she's kind of a female attache or assistant at uh, Nor uh, NORAD. And there's this incredible scene where Dabney Coleman is chewing gum. He's smacking gum. He gives her the piece of gum she puts it in her hand and she just fucking pops it in her mouth. It's like <laughs> one of the greatest little comedic scenes. Again, this movie has such a it, little bits of comedy that I yeah. think make it really work. Um, and then you have, uh, I'm, I'm going to skip over some of these. Um, Talk about the parents. Yeah, yeah, you have you have uh, the parents, right? Uh, William Bogart is Mr. Lightman, and Susan Davis as as Mrs. Lightman. These some of these scenes are with these parents are absolutely incredible. I think most people were, will remember the scene where they eat the corn, where uh, Mr. Lightman is using a piece of bread to butter his corn, and then he takes a bite into it and complains that the corn is raw, and, and Mrs. Lightman says, "Oh, but you could taste the vitamin A." And he's like, can I just take a pill and eat like a regular piece of corn? <laughs> it's really, and they have some great, there's some great comedic scenes where there's kind of bait and switch. This movie does a lot of bait and switch, uh, especially the, at the ending, which is incredible. But there's like scenes where they're kind of yelling for him and you think it's because they have heard that he's responsible for the break-in uh, to uh, NORAD. But it's actually, you know, oh, the garbage, please take out the trash. Or, oh, we're actually surprised you got good grades because, of course, he changes his grades. We're jumping ahead a little bit. Um, I will mention one other character, too. Uh, Irving Meltzman, who played Paul Richter. This guy, Irving Meltzman, I'm sorry, he really looks just like poet Allen Ginsberg. He's the kind of the one who oversees Whopper. He's a very nerdy character. Yeah, um, yeah he's really great in this film. He, he was also in the movie The Man with One Red Shoe, Tom Hanks movie that Dabney Coleman was also in playing this exact uh, character. Right. He always plays, you know. Right. And, and um, you know, there, there's a lot of other minor parts. You know, there's obviously a lot of, uh, you know, military folk at NORAD. But I will mention one in particular, James Tolkien, as Mr. as FBI agent Wigan. He's actually really... Um, Really cool. Uh, you know, he's kind of one of these intimidating, he's a bald guy, he's intimidating. And I almost wonder why they didn't give some of his, some of Dabney Coleman's scenes to him, like the interrogation kind of thing, as Jeff will talk about. Um, and then, you know, we have to mention, um, oh, I'll mention an early, you know, very early role, the first role, in fact, 
of Michael Madsen, who would later become famous for movies like Reservoir Dogs and many other films, as Lieutenant, Lieutenant Steve Phelps. He's in that opening sequence in the missile silo, which uh, we'll talk about when we go over the plot. Um, and then finally, last but certainly not least, we have uh, Eddie Deason as, the, as Melvin and uh, Maury Chicken as Jim Sting. These are the kind of computer, older computer nerds like the real life characters Jeff met back in the 80s that he will be talking about extensively. So yep. uh, so for the plot, why don't you go through it and I'll chime in and we can kind of switch off, uh, you know, if we decide to. Yeah, and by the way, Eddie Deason uh, was in famously in Greece um, as uh, Eugene. Uh, so as an early he's, he's in a lot of films as the quintessential nerd. Yep. Because he is just the quintessential nerd. He That's is. what when you he, like next to the next to the word nerd in the dictionary, you have a picture of Eddie Deason, pretty yep. much. And he's very proud of that, as he should be. So, yeah. um, all right. So, uh, look the, the the plot. I think everybody knows um, at this point. Um, you got most of it from the opening clips. I'm just going to cover a couple highlights here. I'm I'm going to go through it uh, fairly quickly. But the the idea is, um, you know, the they did a test of uh, nuclear uh, launches where they had men in silos who, when the nuclear launch uh, would uh, be called on, would have to uh, uh, type in codes, verify it, and then turn the key. Um, they did a, such a test, and the, the men in the silos, uh, you know, did not perform their tasks like, you know, 22% of the time they, they learned including the scene that Slip was talking about that had Michael Madsen in it, where he, the Michael Madsen character, was willing to turn the key, and he actually drew his firearm on his uh, compadre there to force him to turn the key. They did not know it was a test, and they, they, that uh, group failed the test uh, there. And so that was used as a, 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 uh, you know, an idea that they should replace the um, men in the silos with a computer that would suffer from such, you know, um, maybe a questionable ethics, as it were. Um, one of the things that uh, we wanted to talk about, Lightman, um, you, you wanted to, I'm going to talk about. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so with David Lightman, we are introduced to him. The first time we were introduced to him is in a video arcade in Seattle. This is a young, uh, bright high school student who's we're getting a sense of how important school is to him because he instead of you know, he's about to be late for school because he's trying to get the high score on a, a Galaga video game. Yeah. And while he's in the in the arcade, we get to hear a little music, uh, a little song called Video Fever. So why don't we to introduce David Lightman? Let's play his little theme song. Let's do it. It's good to see that Dale Bosio got some early work there. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say, that was actually a song by a group uh, called The Beepers. Uh, I think that might have been their only song. Uh, but anyway, it's a, it's a great, it's very Dale Bosio. So anyway, why don't you uh, 
continue about uh, David Lightman here. So yeah, so Lightman, uh, you know, this is the character played by Matthew Broderick. You know, as you heard, he's kind of a, a very smart but unmotivated high school student. Um, he has a early personal-ish computer called an MSI 8080. I think I said a 1280 before, so correcting that to an 8080. Um, he uses this to uh, access the school's uh, computer system to change his grades. When he gets sent to the principal's office, you know, for making the joke about uh, asexual reproduction about his teacher, he knows where they hide their passwords, so he looks that up. He gets in there uh, changes, to changes his grades, and he changes Jennifer Mack, Ali Sheedy's grades as well. Um, he is later seen, of course, war dialing, as it became known after this movie, but uh, scanning, demon dialing is also what it's called, uh, to try to find numbers in Sunnyvale, California, early Silicon Valley uh, type companies to find a computer game company that he saw an ad for in a magazine. Um, he gets onto a system that he thinks is this uh, computer company, um, and he starts asking what games they have, and he starts seeing games like uh, chess, checkers, backgammon, poker, tic-tac-toe, along with things like uh, theater-wide biotoxic and chemical warfare, global thermonuclear war, and he kind of gets, uh, you know, kicked off. He can't really uh, do anything, um, and this is where he goes to visit uh, Malvin and Jim, as we'll be talking about a little bit later, um, and learns about, uh, you know, does some kind of research and learns about Falcon, which we'll get into. Um you know, he, of course, doesn't isn't aware that he's actually connecting to a military computer, that he's playing this game that is actually a simulation that uh, the, the military doesn't understand the simulation or, uh, you know, starts going out of control. Um, it starts, uh, you know, escalating things. Um, it doesn't understand the difference between the simulation and, and reality, um, which seems to be a pretty bad flaw in the design of this program. So we have to talk to that uh, Allen Ginsberg character about his shitty design. We'll get into that <laughs> later. Uh, it seems to be like a really major flaw. It's like, is this a simulation or is this real? I'm not sure. You might want to get that down in your, in your program. Right. Um, anyway, uh, he, the idea starts escalating. There's more and more war things happening, nuclear uh, uh, subs, and missiles launching and, and all this kind of stuff. Um, David, of course, starts learning about that, the you know, things are going haywire from the news. Um, he gets arrested uh, by the FBI eventually here. I'm skipping a lot of details. By the way, spoiler alert, go watch this fucking movie. Yeah, you should. We should have said that at the beginning. I mean, it's like this is like a movie everyone should watch. Yeah, I mean, if anyone's going to listen to our episode and not see the movie, just know we're going to spoil every fucking thing ever. So just. Oh do yeah, it. and this we're, is actually less bad than we've been in the past because we walked through the whole film, but this time we're not. So, the fact, actually, the fact that we're not may make none of this make sense. So you probably should go watch the movie. I think most people have probably seen this movie or at least yeah. remember the general plot. But anyway, the, the simulation is indistinguishable from the real thing. It starts escalating. David starts getting um, in trouble. Uh, you know, he gets arrested. The FBI agents take him uh, to, to NORAD. Um, and they ha he has a lot of exchanges with uh, McKittrick and uh, various folks there, which we'll get into in a little bit more detail later on. Um, he escapes Norad again, some details we'll talk about. Um, and he, because David, of course, realizes that this is a simulation. It's not real. 
He knows the guy who de designed the original simulation stuff is Falcon. And he goes out to uh, Oregon to uh, see Falcon and Jennifer Mack Alishidi comes along and they have a couple of scenes there that we will uh, talk about where he, they try to convince Falcon to contact uh, the feds, the government there to let the military, to let them know um, what is actually uh, going on. Um, the escalation continues. The Soviets are seeing our uh, American bombers and stuff starting to get agitated. They start uh, readying their uh, you know, military preparations and it starts escalating um, out of control. Um, and everyone's trying to calm everything down. Falcon and the kids return to NORAD, try to convince everybody, of course, that this is just a simulation and uh, figure out a way to get the computer to burn itself out, basically, and, and, uh, and not uh, get super um, you know, crazy here. And the computer eventually learns the idea that uh, there is going to be uh, no winning at a nuclear war. Um, again, skipping a lot of the details, you get the you get the sense. We should it. we should actually there's an important detail we need to go back to. So one of the details is Falcon does convince the general to call off the strike, right? That it's a simulation, and they all cheer. And then of course, what happens? Uh, Whopper or Joshua decides to override them, right? Yeah. And it starts cracking the the trying to crack the launch codes, and this is like a huge twist, right? Because yeah. I think. Because even when um, when Lasker during the director's commentary, Batum and Lasker were talking about how people were actually getting up to leave uh, when they started applauding, and then all of a sudden they're like, "Wait, what are these numbers?" Right? They see these numbers flashing on the screen, and they realize that Joshua is actually overriding them to crack the launch codes to uh, launch the missiles himself uh, itself, and it's a huge bait and switch. You know, so so that's when the tic tac they they teach the get the computer to play tic tac toe, and that's where the ending. So we should include that just because it is such a major bait and switch that it fooled the audiences of the time. Yeah, that's a good point that I skipped over. The other thing too, again, poor design of your computer program. Where hey, can you can you stop this now? We're we're done here now. We're just going to keep going. It's like no, no, you can go ahead and stop this uh, thing. No, we're just going to like the 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 idea that the computer just is complete has no fail safe no circuit breaking pattern no ability for humans to intervene just seems a little silly but well that's the whole central theme of the film i right? know you start it's out with it's funny because i'm going to talk about this more but you start out with essentially these two guys in a silo you have a control right you have two people who have to make this decision and one of them doesn't make the decision in other words they look at it as he failed the test he actually passed the test because he didn't do it. Yeah. And and that's what this movie's about. It's it's like they they keep coming to it again and again even though yeah, I think they had to build in those flaws to kind of say, you know, this is scary this whole idea of a of everything being computerized but also like this whole idea of a winnable war. It's it's really great. I mean, I don't know. We'll talk about those scenes cuz I think you know, we may have some discussion over what works and what doesn't, you know. Well, there's even a part where, uh, you know, the general says, can't you just unplug the thing? You know, when it's starting oh, yeah. to go haywire, it's like, no, that won't work. But yeah, it won't work because it'll think that NORAD's been taken out. Exactly. And, and it's just... like, well, what is it when you unplug it? What's what's still running? Oh, no, it, it, I think it's the silo computers won't have contact or something. And, and they'll think NORAD's is... been wiped out and it will just execute the the, the, the program. Right, right. 
again, very, very questionable sort of systems design. Um, but nevertheless, you know, as you'd say, the economy of storytelling, right? Yeah. Um, I, I'm actually not going to, uh, I, I'm going to talk about some other flaws um, in the in the movie and logic. I'm not going to talk about that one so much, but um, let's uh, talk about some our, some favorite key scenes that we have. So we, we kind of skipped through the walkthrough uh, fairly quickly because we did want to spend some time talking about some of our favorite scenes and the impact on the on the plot, the movie, and us personally. Um, so I'm going to go first here. Uh, so maybe maybe we uh, we trade off back and forth here. So I'll talk uh, about when. And you uh, talk about let's one. see. Let's see how mine's structured because see if that works. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, we could do that. Yeah. Um, I'm also going to talk about this one too, though. After you do it, I'm going to talk about something after this. That's fine. All right, so the very first one I'm going to talk about is when Lightman goes to visit Jim and Malvin at the Control Data Institute. (laughs) (laughs) And there's all these people working on these 70s-era mainframe computers, and it looks like, again, like a a 70s computer lab of various sorts with the tape machines and and all that. And he goes into the back. He just walks right in. No one stops him, this teenager, uh, no security goes right in the back and he finds, you know, Jim underneath a table with his head under there and he, and he talks to him and he, of course he hits his head in a, yeah. But before he actually even says that, he tells Jennifer who's with him, you know, could you stay here? These Sometimes these yeah. guys are nervous. And there was the girls, that's right. Yeah. That's right. right. So she's watching all this from afar, these like hyper nerds um, interacting. Uh, good point. But anyway, these two characters... Um, you know, that are, are there. And it's interesting that this is intended to be a corporate setting um, instead of a university one. I think this, rep- it's probably accurate, but it represents a shift that, you know, um, there were these kind of corporate computer centers where you had all sorts of people at terminals and doing all sorts of uh, seemingly important work. Of course, there are computer systems in, in corporate America in the 60s and 70s, even in the 50s in certain places. But I just have a feeling that if this movie were made a couple of years earlier, Jim and Malvin would have been at a university, not at a kind of like some corporate looking uh, computer. Lab, right. right? Um, the other thing, too, is that these guys, the, the, the casting and their interaction and the fact that, uh, you know, uh, Lightman hands some of his research to Jim, who he's asking for help and trying to figure out, you know, how he can get into this system um, and Malvin uh, just grabs the paper away. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, that's one, of, that's one of the best things ever. Remember when, yeah, he says to him, it's like, remember that it, you asked me to tell you whenever you were being yeah, rude or you whatever. Being insensitive, <laughs> like you're yeah, doing, you're just, being insensitive, yeah. yeah. It, it, what's hilarious is, like, these guys were like, you know, Bert and Ernie, they had this dysfunctional relationship. They were a team you could just tell they've worked together for a long time. They're really annoyed with each other, but they, you know, obviously deeply respect and like each other. I, I don't know how or how they figured out how to get these guys and how to direct them in their relationship, but it's somebody who had spent time around these types. It was just so perfect that I just don't believe right. they just randomly stumbled onto this. It's got every aspect of it. Just absolutely perfect. Anyway, you wanted to talk about mm-hmm. this as well. Yeah, so I just wanted to talk about um, how this scene kicks off the next one, you know, because 
you know, basically what he gives them is the printout from this, uh, you know, Whopper that has a series of games. And, and, and that scene before is really great too, where he's looking at the screen and it's showing like checkers, chess, whatever. And then it all the show says shows like tactical guerrilla warfare. And obviously we know global thermonuclear war and his facial expression just changes. You know, he could tell this is not uh, the software company in uh, in Sunnyvale, uh, which is interesting because we'll talk about war dialing and how he dials the numbers and the area code they use is not Sunnyvale. Right. It's like three nine nine or something. It should be yeah. four oh eight back that's then. Right. Uh, but anyway, that's that's neither here nor there. But but, you know, of course. And then Malvin says, you know, this is, you know, you're never getting into this. This is something big or whatever. But then he's like, well, how do I want he's all I really want to get into this. How do I figure it out? And. Uh, of course, Malvin says, that's easy. You just go right through the first game, Falcon's Maze. So he does the research on Falcon. And what I love about this sequence, obviously, that video fever song we played that kind of beeping synth motif is actually kind of david's theme and they play like a more calm down version of that during the soundtrack but what's really cool about this sequence where he goes and does the research is it's all analog he's like looking at books and magazines at microfiche yeah. at card catalogs and it kind of really puts you back like oh in 1983 a lot of this other stuff wasn't computerized you know, obviously he does look at a few computer things, but he's able to figure out who Falcon is. And that's how he does the research for the password. And what's really cool about this, too, is this kind of and then they show his room later with all these dot matrix printouts and all these things taped up. And he's like not wearing a shirt and he's disheveled. He obviously hasn't slept. That's when Jennifer comes in and there's a little more chemistry between them, you know, because he's like shirtless or whatever. But that kind of goes back to Cuckoo's Maze. Cuckoo's Maze tells the story of the other side. So whereas Lightman is the hacker. Cuckoo's egg, you mean. Uh, Cuckoo's egg, sorry. Um, Cuckoo's egg uh, basically shows the other side where Clifford Stoll is the person being hacked, but he's spending all of his time trying to figure out who the hacker is and trying to figure out where he's coming from and tracing him. And he does all this work and it takes over his whole life. And they really show that in this film with just the way his room looks and just the way he looks and the, and the whole sequence. And I just think this is just a brilliant fucking sequence. This, you know, and, and again, I love these two characters, too, because, you know, obviously um, the character of Jim, yeah. is that his name? Um, he's like wearing a T-shirt with a smiley face. I mean, these guys could dress however they wanted because they were so skilled. People wanted them. And in a way, back then, people were, you know, these computer guys, it was just so arcane to them. And they just didn't have it was also new. So it was like, I love that they're in this one corner of the of the office and it's just a bunch of broken computer, you know, just a bunch of computer parts and cables around them. And it just really captures that early on that we all have worked with in offices and stuff. I mean, I worked with people like yeah, this. Yeah, they were t-shirt wearing so, kind of slackers in a world yeah. where, you know, computer professionals at that point wore suits and, you know, we're kind of, so yeah. they, this was like kind of the, the era where that, that, that kind of archetype was taking over and they just, in 1983, captured it perfectly. So anyway, on to your first one that you want to talk about. Right, so my first one is, I'm going to talk about the opening sequence. Because I think this opening sequence is one of the best in the film. It, it It's basically a scene, we come upon a scene where 
the opening sequence is a car driving through an incredible snowstorm, right? And we're led to believe this is what, North Dakota or yeah. something? Um, you know, they're basically in the far north where we know the missile silos are. And, and it's actually um, something that the screenplay writers got from an article uh, that was all about how these silos worked. Um, you know, where you need two people to kind of turn the keys to launch the missile. And we're introduced to an older sergeant and then a younger, younger officer who's played by Michael Madsen. Right. And they're they're walking. They walk into this farmhouse and they go to a mirror. It's all very, you know, James Bondy and secret, you know, and they go to this mirror and show their passes and it opens up and they go down to the silo. Right. And the older officer is is talking about, you know, it's very comedic. He's talking about marijuana. He's talking about this great marijuana he smoked. And he's like, this stuff makes, you know, tie stick. Tastes like yeah. oregano and shit. <laughs> and, and it's all very light. And then, of course, uh, what I really like is there's foreshadowing, right, that that automated systems can fail because there's one of the indicator lights is on. And and Michael Madsen's like, oh, shit, there's a light on. And, and the other guy's like, oh, just tap it with your hand. You know, it's like it's like broken electronics. So it's like foreshadowing of what the whole film he is about, it. like right, he fonzies it. And um, but then, of course, there's an, a, a real uh alert right and they get these codes and they write down the you know alpha foxtrot whatever you know they're writing down these codes and, and the whole scene is so realistic and um there's they're uh flipping all the launches and all this stuff and the, and what's interesting is the missiles are actually actually firing up and the reason they did this because obviously we know this scene you've seen the film it's a test it's not meant to be a real launching but the reason they launched those uh Missiles is A, to give you suspense and wonder what the hell's going on, but also is foreshadowing for when they're really going to launch later. So I think even though in a real, in a test scenario, they would not do this. But anyways, what ends up happening is Jeff talked about it in in, in the plot uh, summary where the older officer will not. And it's interesting that it's the older officer, right? The more experienced officer wants to call somebody and confirm that this is a real launching before he kills millions of people, whereas the young guy who's untrained, who's unexperienced, is ready to pull a gun on the other guy, right? Uh, threatening him with his life if he doesn't turn the key. Now, of course, if he kills him, the launch is yeah. off anyway, I guess. Um, but anyway... I was um, going to mention that, but... Yeah. I think... Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that... Uh, well, you can mention that, too, no, if you just want to talk about that. No, just that's kind of silly. It's like, you're going to threaten to shoot the guy, and if you shoot him, he's not going to be able to... It just doesn't make any sense, but... It just... It kind of makes sense, though, because, again, this younger guy is really just like, I need to follow right. rules, right? I need to follow the protocol. And he's like, I've got to get this guy to do this. And he's more threatening him than going to actually probably kill him. But the older guy's like, this is real. I know the consequences. I need to really get confirmation of this. And, of course, he can't reach anybody. And, of course, we learn later it's it's a test and and then then one of the other the one of the first scenes in the movie is a kind of board you know they're at norad and they're talking about the results of this and mckittrick as played by dabney coleman versus general berenger you know general berenger's like i like that there's humans involved that there's that there's people there i can trust uh, but mckittrick's like well they failed you know we need to take them out of the equation we need to put uh you know we need to automate all this and have computers do all of it. And uh, of course, that's the whole setup for what happens, yeah. right? And it's it's a great scene because it's expository, but it's really 
you know, a gripping scene. And that that opening is so great. And I think this is a central tenet of the film. And the point that fucking uh, we're going to talk about the next scene, um, it's kind of the whole point of the film. And even Falcon later in the film tells the general who when he wants the general to actually stop the launch, he says, you are listening to a machine do the world a favor and don't act like one. And this is essentially the central conceit that the movie is trying to talk about, one of the central themes. And I think it's just a really powerful way of introducing the film. And I think it, you know, they re-come back to it um, and come back to the whole nature of nuclear war and how we can be human about it and understand that maybe this isn't a good idea, right? Um, so I think that leads perfectly into the next scene you're going to talk yeah, about. Yeah, so Lightman and Mac go to visit Falcon. So, uh, you know, this is after Lightman escapes NORAD, um, you know, and we'll talk about how he does that in a little bit. He uh, goes, he calls up Jennifer saying he needs to go, she need, he needs her to send him a ticket, a plane ticket, so he can go visit Falcon. Um, and convince him what, what's going on. And she meets him in, in Oregon, and they go to this Goose Island, Oregon, where Falcon lives. Uh, they take a ferry out there because I guess you only can, it's a true island. You only can reach it by a ferry. And they find uh, Falcon. He's uh, flying a pterodactyl remote control like kind of device. Um, they implore him to help tell NORAD uh, crew about what's really happening, that his simulation is run amok. Um, and Falcon is seems sort of nonplussed by their pleas, and he uh, instead tells them, a, a, you know, a parable, a metaphor about um, the extinction of humanity uh, via the dinosaurs, uh, which he is obsessed with. There's dinosaur paraphernalia everywhere. He's flying a pterodactyl remote control kind of plane thing. All his videos, he has like, you know, kind of a Clash of the Titans sort of dinosaur animations playing. Um, and he uh, goes on to tell that uh, essentially um, that, uh, look, the dinosaurs ruled the earth. Um, they became extinct because of a meteor. He didn't really go into that whole thing. Um, and the life started over again. Um, and, you know, we came and, you know, other things came and we'll be extinct too through our own you know, machinations, and that's just kind of the cycle of life and get over it and move on. And, well, you know, why is everybody so ups upset about this? And the kids get very angry about uh, his nihilism almost, right? Uh, fatalism, uh, I'd say it's almost nihilism, right? Um, and they're, they're just like, well, we're young. We haven't even a chance to live yet. You know, all that kind of stuff. And, and Falcon is just kind of like, yeah, I'm going to bed, you know. You can uh, you can stay here. You know you missed the last ferry. Good luck, kind of kind of uh, uh, thing. Now, and also keep in mind that you know one of the things with him is he essentially checked out when his wife and son were. I believe they were killed in like right. a car accident, yeah, right? right? So he he is kind of checked out, and that's why he's under like witness protection essentially on this island. Um, and they bring this up to him as well. Like you're essentially dead, you know? Um, but, uh, yeah, go on. Sorry. I, I have more to say about this, but I'll let you continue with your, your yeah, thoughts. So the, right. So, you know, his, his wife and child died. He kind of, he has become, you know, this, this, you know, morose, maybe depressed character. 
and and they're angry that he is not willing to kind of lift a finger to save the world, as it were. Um, now, I have a particular point of view here that may not be very popular, but it, it's this. It's like all the points that Falcon made about humanity going extinct through its own devices and life will start over again and all this kind of stuff is absolutely true. <laughs> we're, we're actively trying to extinct ourselves uh, by all sorts of stupidity and failure to act and all sorts of things that I won't go into. Um, I think Falcon was 100% right about his conclusions with regard to humanity, and I'm sure that humans will, will, will do ourselves in it at some point. Um, and there's a very clear line of reasoning of why this is, is the case. And the, the funny thing is, is him articulating this makes him a bit of a villain in the movie, right? Like, like he is, uh, he has a pretty clear, clear-eyed and rational take on the foibles of humanity and, and why humans are sort of programmed to self-destruct. Um, and he, be, they paint him as a villain. Um, and it isn't be, be, until he becomes won over by Lightman and Mac and decides to help him that he becomes a hero. And I think this is kind of a, an interesting plot that happens in a lot of movies where the character who has a pretty honest and truthful, in my opinion, view of humanity is always made out to be the villain because it goes against the, it goes against the, the, the uh, kind of hallucination that people like to believe about humanity. Uh, this is also true of the character of Cypher in The Matrix, who realizes what The Matrix is and is just like, look, this is a depressing, horrible place, living underground, eating gruel. I rather actually be part of the hallucination to be, uh, you know, an, an important person like an actor. He says, uh, "Magneto of X Men is a villain, but he has a very, I think, fair and reasonable view of humanity in, in the in the plot there of that movie where, you know, people are um, there's a lot of prejudice and a lot of hatred, and it's hard to have that if everybody is the same as you. Obviously, the it, it's uh, directed towards uh, mutants in that case, but it's a uh, again a metaphor and parable for." Uh, other, you know, groups of, of people. And it's just funny that these characters, I think, have correct, honest views. Um, they don't buy into the fantasy version of humanity and their villainous outsiders be, because of it. And I am, I'm tired of it because I think these anti-heroes are actually the heroes and they're speaking truth. And there'd be more interesting uh, movies and books and stuff like that if what they had to say was taken uh, to be uh, different than it's presented as these kind of uh, anti-human, you know, uh, you know, misanthropic things instead of like this kind of cold-eyed assessment of the flaws of our species. So anyway, you wanted to talk about this as well, no doubt. Oh, yeah, I love this scene. Uh, I, I agree with just about all that you said, except um, I have a little bit more to say about that. But um, one thing I wanted to bring up is I really love I was mesmerized by this scene. I think it's a it's a nice break in the movie and it's really his speech is hypnotic to me. And I I really think it affected me when I saw it and I'm watching it again. I'm just like, this is uh, amazing. I I totally agree with his ideas as well. And I think uh, I really thought what what I like, what was fascinating to me at the time was, you know, he said maybe nature will start over with the bees most likely. And of course, this is when bee populations weren't being destroyed by yeah, us. Exactly. You know, now, of course, the iron, you know, the bees would be the perfect model for some future sci fi evolution, you know, uh, with their with their weird communal society, almost like a Borg like yeah. or something. I just thought that was so evocative. I thought this was just such an interesting take. And um you know, also he's positioned himself. He, he, 
he basically, you know, you get the sense it's not really said that he tried to convince them that this was not something they should pursue, this this whopper. And even though he had developed a lot of the uh, the the tech, you know, developed a lot of the science behind what makes it work, you get the sense that he was kind of like, well, they'll never listen to me. They still believe a war is winnable. And so I'm going to retire to this island, which is like five minutes away from a detonation zone. So I'll just die instantly. I won't feel anything. Another um, another clear-eyed view of reality, right? Right, right. But what's interesting is he does have a, you know, he is convinced by them. And I think I think them convincing him is one of my favorite things in the movie, even though I still like his view of things as a realistic approach. And I agree with you. But what's interesting about this movie is there are no villains. There are no real villains. The closest things to villains are Dabney Coleman, who isn't really a villain in the end, um, and jo- Joshua, right. right, Whopper. But Whopper is just a child, right? It's it's the the whole thing, you know, they have this brilliant idea of him being a child and Whopper just hasn't learned about the futility of nuclear war. And that's what we get in the final scenes. And so I think this movie is so brilliant because even though it's got a conflict and it's got drama, there's no one who's particularly 100% bad. Um, and um, yeah, I think, I think the Magneto characters of X-Men is interesting too, like because... Uh, Magneto is sympathetic, right? Because he'd been through the Holocaust and seen the evils of humanity and his view of humanity. I mean, yeah, we often view humanity as like, oh, well, and even this movie says it like to be, you you should act more human. But really, sometimes I think more human is like these kind of weird warlike apes. And, you know, we're not necessarily good. You know, there might be some potential for us to be good and we know what good is, but we ultimately always go back to our kind of primitive selves. Um, and I think I I agreed with this. I did not find Falcon evil in this for for saying this. I thought it was I thought he was convincing. And um, but I do think, uh, you know, the next scenes, which I'm going to talk about, do kind of make sense also. Yeah. Uh, and, and it kind of makes sense that he might have a change of heart for these kids. Yeah, we talked a little bit about these themes in our Twilight Zone episode, too, uh, as well. So go back and listen Right. So why don't you talk about your next scene here? So I am going to talk about the post-Falcon scene in a minute, but it's just part of a general series of scenes, uh, which is the scenes of David and Jennifer together and their chemistry and the chemistry of the actors. Um, I think both of these actors are fantastic in this movie. I think at times, you know, I used to hate Matthew Broderick because this girl I liked in college really loved him. And it was funny because when I saw this movie, I kind of identified with him. I'm like, oh, I'm a nerdy guy, but I'm not, you know, I was like a real nerd, not a movie star nerd. You know, he's kind of got like a Dustin Hoffman, like handsome appeal. I was not like that. And, you know, but, but it's like, they, they, you know, even the joke in the classroom, it's like, it's realistic that she kind of gloms onto him and, and the way they kind of get together is realistic. Uh, you know, the, one of the first scenes there together is in the classroom, but then they go, you know, she gives him a ride home and he kind of invites her up and he's like nervously cleaning up his room and then they change the grade. And that's when she kind of really kind of starts, you could see her becoming attracted to this guy, his rebelliousness uh, and also his intelligence, right, uh, at being able to figure this out. And we'll talk about how realistic this was at the time, but uh, it doesn't matter because it it's almost another prescient thing uh, that would influence a lot of other things. Um, and I love uh, David's parents, 
right? I love the interactions around her and David's parents, like the mom saying, why don't you, we're going to have a barbecue. Why don't you invite your little friend? <laughs> and then she kind of, kind of jokes and, and he walks and she kind of puts him in, puts her legs around him and traps him for yeah. a second. And uh, it's funny too, because she's depicted as being really athletic. You see her like, she's a dancer, she's doing stretches, she's jogging to his house, you know, and he is like this kind of skinny nerd. It's almost like she's overpowering him a little bit. And that scene was totally improvised. Like she just did that. And it's like kind of a, almost like a, a flirtation, yeah, it certainly you know, is. it's yeah. really a flirtatious scene. Uh, I also love the scene where he's quote unquote war dialing, which we'll talk about more. He's trying to find the computer in Sunnyvale that has that this game company has. So he's dialing these phone numbers and checking if they're a modem. And then he finds some hits and he eventually gets the hit to NORAD somehow. Um, and uh, but when when he's do, dialing the numbers, she's actually kind of touching and stroking the screen like she's like, this is so hot to me that this guy is so clever, yeah. you know. Um, and I love the scene where they're, you know, they're making the Paris reservation. And of course, that that screenplay brilliantly circles back to that. Right. We heard that in the beginning uh, with the Siskel and Ebert clips where Dabney Coleman's like, hey, you were trying to get away to Paris. Like it was part of right, the plot. Right, right. You know, he was flying and then he was going to get a flight he, he to Paris. Just showing off uh, for some girl. Right. 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 He's just showing off for some girl playing around. Um, and I love when they're together and, you know, when they get the global thermonuclear war and they start playing, he's like, this is awesome. This is like the best game ever. It's like a strategy game or something. And he's like, what should we blow up first? And she's like, Seattle or Las Vegas and then Seattle, which is where they are, which is just so yeah. funny. Right. Um, I also love the scene where, uh, when later during probably the most problematic sequence, which Jeff is going to talk about next, uh, the whole kind of getting to Falcons and all that. When she meets up with him again, she's like, is this because you changed yeah. my grade? You know, it's so funny. Uh, obviously she knows that's not true. But now let's talk about when they do meet with Falcon, right? And they're kind of protesting to him and they eventually, he's just like, you can sleep on the floor or whatever. And he leaves. They go out and are trying to get off the aisle. They want to get somewhere to do something about this. Um and, you know, they, they have no way of getting off the island. And uh, they kind of go into this weird dramatic scene. This is the scene written by Tom Mankiewicz where they talk about the fact that they're going to die of, of the nuclear war. Right. And, um, you know, David says, I always wanted to learn to swim because she she says, let's swim for it, which, of course, there's no way they could swim that. Uh, but uh, she's like, let's swim for it. And he's like, I don't know how to swim. And she's kind of making fun of him. But then he's like, I always wanted to learn how to swim and I won't learn how to swim. And I wish I didn't know about this. I wish I could just be ignorant of this and just have it happen uh, like everyone else. And um, I really love her scene, where, her dialogue where she says, you know, I was supposed to be on TV. Now. Like I was supposed to be on TV next week. And my aerobic stance class and, you know, who would watch, he's a wow, a movie star. And she said, who would watch? And he says, I would watch, you know, it's just touching, yeah. you know, it's like this whole thing of their, they're, they're trying to deal with this idea that they're going to die. A bunch die. of teenage girls and, doing aerobics. I think more than just him would probably watch that. <laughs> <laughs> but it really captures that fear. I think a lot of us had, I mean, I was talking with my wife about this, about how, we were fucking really thinking we were all going to die, you know, especially with Reagan, because he was so pro war. He was like had this stupid SDI thing. Uh, and it's funny, Barb's mom actually worked on that. Um, 
she was a programmer in the 80s and she actually worked on Star Wars. And it was, you know, as we all know, it it couldn't have worked at the time. Um, it was just a fantasy, you know, um, and uh, a fantasy of a of a, a, you know, a man, a president who was showing signs of early onset dementia would eventually have Alzheimer's disease. So it was kind of scary to us all. Um, but anyway, I just think this scene perfectly captures that. And I think it's great. I think Siskel is absolutely full of shit. I think Ebert's right on the money when he says this is one of the most important things in the film. It's kind of the point of the whole film, in a way. Falcon's lecture and this are just powerful stuff. So that's my next thing I wanted to talk about. So let's circle back to what you want to talk yeah, about. Yeah, I'm going to talk about something uh, that this movie does in spades. And there's lots of movies that do this. It's the password cracking stuff. And it drives me fucking nuts. So you know, this is a, a nerd aside, so you could just, you know, hit forward 30 seconds on your podcast if you don't want to hear me go off about this. But, like, uh, password cracking scenes in movies are always 100% stupid. Uh, <laughs> maybe 99% stupid. And War Games is really no exception. You know, you, you've all seen it, right? There's some scene where the hero is trying to crack the password to save humanity. And it shows on the screen something like password cracking 70% complete. And this is just completely stupid on the face of it, because if you knew that cracking program was 70% of the way there, you would know what 100% was. You would know the password. It's just, it's just so fucking dumb. I can't take it. Um, the other thing in war games in particular is uh, Whopper is trying to guess the launch codes to, to launch the, the, the war. And you'll talk about, I think, how this is an exciting scene critical to the movie. And I, I, it is exciting. I, I don't take anything away from that. But it's sort of intimated that Whopper's trying to brute force all the combinations of this 10-digit alphanumeric password. But but when it guesses the correct character of one of the digits, it like kind of locks in place like a, a bank vault tumbler. And then they're all right, that's a good metaphor. It's like a combination, yeah, like yeah. you said. So and, yeah. and then they're like, oh, three, three, they've gotten three of the ten. And you know, that's like a you know, a a, a, a critical sort of tension uh in the in the scene. But I also want to point out just how technically this is the dumbest fucking thing ever. And like, for example, if there's 10 characters and once you get one of the characters, it locks in place and you go on to the next one, it would take Whopper or honestly, any personal computer of the era, about three milliseconds to crack because all it would do there there's, it's all upper digit characters. There's uh, 26 characters in the alphabet and, and 10 numbers. So there's 36 options for each of the 10 characters. There's three at the worst, 360 things that would need to try to launch the codes. And it would take like a, not even a heartbeat to, to crack this fucking thing. And then no one ever stopped to think of it. They did all this research and had all these nerds contribute all this stuff about how all this stuff works. And no one says, hey, by the way, that seems really fucking stupid. And not only that, even if it was guessing, it was doing random passwords for 10-digit alphanumeric with the limits on this, no special characters. Probably take about two days to crack anyway. But in this case, it was just dumb. Yeah, it would take a lot longer to crack. And the fact is it couldn't crack one by one, right? Because you can't match one. I mean, I mean, it's it like all 10. It's like there's no way to match it. You have <laughs> yeah, to get all exactly. 10, right? You exactly. The fact that it would lock in place when you got one means that it would take like, like literally the blink of an eye to crack all of it. Lastly, by the way, and this, so all I went into, you could say, yeah, that's, you know, thank Thanks, Dr. Science. Who gives a shit? The dumbest thing was, is that Whopper already knew the code. So because they replaced the men in all the silos with, uh, 
you know, with, with a... Yeah, this is actually really fucking confusing because they're like, they do say this at the beginning of the film. So let's let's find out what you have to say about this because maybe I'm just misunderstanding this. Because at the beginning of the film, they're like, well, we'll take the man out of the equation, but we'll keep control where it matters at right. the top, right? And And during the final sequence, they do have to push a launch button it actually has to be controlled by them. But then somehow, I think when they meant taking the men out of the loop, they push launch and then it goes and, and automatically sends the launch codes. So I was confused as to what Whopper was doing versus it. I think what they may have meant was that Whopper wasn't necessarily involved in the launch. Whopper is there to simulate uh, nuclear scenarios, which is, again, a little problematic given the end of the film. Because it kind of does that at the end only, but it's but it kind of designed access, to do that. But, but potentially it's connected to and has access to the system that could launch. The, right, because if it if they unplug it, supposedly it would, the things would, yeah, it's, it's really confusing to me that this is a little convoluted in the story where it's like they're saying, yeah, like we want human control, but then somehow it's automated too. Like it's yeah, weird. The other thing too, when they replace the men in the silos with the automatic system, they actually show scenes, uh, you know, clips of the silos that have the automatic computer that will launch the code. But the actual launch code is hard coded into <laughs> so like the janitor who's <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. cleaning up in the silo would say, Oh, here's our nuclear launch code, you know, if anybody wants it, because it's hard coded into this. It doesn't make any fucking sense. And again, the thing, the thing about these sort of scenes that drive me nuts is that they spent all this time and money to try to get all these details right, and no one is just looking at this going, okay, this is dumb. Don't do this. Don't do this. Just change this a little bit. Just make this a little more plausible. And they always, like, cheat. You know, those, they'll have people who go on for hours and hours and hours on documentaries about how they, you know, picked out David Lightman's T-shirt because, you know, he's a Galga fan, and, you know, this was made by so-and-so. So here's a T-shirt that says Galga on it. But they don't spend any time or effort just to get these other technical details right. They still don't today in movies, and it's so fucking stupid. Um, you know, like there's, you know, like a, they'll have the Earth rotating the wrong way in movies. You know, and just like, just really dumb shit that it's just not hard to get right if you just spend two seconds. So anyway, that's all I have to say uh, about that. You wanted to talk a little bit more about this? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I agree a little bit, but I think it's minor. And I think one of the issues too is. This movie, you know, we'll talk about our eval. It gets more things right than any other movie about computers. I mean, it's really hard to say that any other movie about uh, computers that's like a mainstream action film that's not a documentary or some, I don't know, art film or something gets things as right as this movie got. And actually, this movie kind of is prescient in so many ways. But I would I would say the... Um, last scene with that combination locks thing, it is really designed to communicate suspense. And um, the fact that, you know, you can have this thing ticking off number, first of all, you see it and it's really dynamic. I mean, the, the visuals in these sequences in NORAD are just amazing. They look so good today. The computer graphics, uh, you know, that were designed over hours, uh, you know, projected on 12 large projectors, coordinated uh, seamlessly with 84 video monitors and a 24 FPS strobe system. Uh, it's just incredible. The You know, they even Whopper with its ridiculous lights. It's just really exciting to watch because you're thinking this is all stuff happening in a computer. You have to make this exciting for the general populace to, to be able to follow. And the whole thing of um, 
one of my favorite things is the sound design. Like when the missiles actually do launch in the simulation and and you're waiting for the general to, he's actually calling someone at what, an outpost like Alaska. Yeah. And he's saying, he's checking to see if they're there. And it's so suspenseful. And it's just this kind of lonely officer. And there's, you know, there's no, um, there's just no, uh, you know, he's not experienced and it's really kind of suspenseful whether this guy's going to die. And all of a sudden the missiles hit on the screen, like in the kind of uh, missile command display. And it's like, it's like these subwoofer sound. It's really powerful. But I also think um, you have the codes going off and you have uh, the, the the female character we mentioned, right? What's her name? Um, The, uh, 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 Pat yeah. Healy, played by Juan and Clay. She's like saying, he's got six, he's got yeah. seven. And so it's a way to communicate suspense. If you didn't have him ticking off those numbers, you wouldn't have that extra element of suspense. And yeah, it's totally inaccurate, right? But to me, it's like, for one thing, people weren't as familiar with this technology at the time, and it's an action movie, and maybe it doesn't age well, but to me, it works from an ad, a filmmaking perspective, if not a, a technology perspective. Um, and uh, yeah, I would say... I would say overall, I don't care about that because it's it's like, you know, it's not like Force Awakens where it's like she finds the Millennium Falcon. It's like there's no that doesn't work from a technology perspective or a likelihood perspective or a filmmaking perspective because it's just too easy. Right. It's not there's no suspense, whereas this is like constant suspense, like they're they're racing against time. And again, it's also what do we talk about in our uh, a trope in our escape from New York? Um, the ticking yeah. clock. Right. It's another way of like a timer going down. They, what they could have done is had it somehow blink and, and it's trying to crack the password. It's trying all the combinations and then had a, a countdown or something like a timer. And, you know, I don't know. But but at any rate, that's that's kind of um, all I'll say about that. I actually think we should go to your next uh, section because it's again, let's deal with the implausibilities okay. here. Okay. And I think this is one I agree with you more on for sure. Yeah, um, we, you agree with me as well. That you agree with me, moron. That that's what he's saying. Moron. I agree with you, come on, moron. I like yeah, that. Yeah. I like that a lot. Uh, uh, okay, so white men escaped from the more pause on. Yeah. I should have said on. Yeah, on I, more. Uh, I agree with you, moron. I, that's a good. That's a good. Yeah. Point. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Lightman escaped from the infirmary. So as you recall, they take him to NORAD. They're trying to stash, uh, stash him somewhere. They put him into the infirmary, which has some kind of lock where you can lock somebody in the infirmary, I guess, if there's a zombie uh, virus breakout or uh, something like that. But he uh, tries to figure out a way to get out of there. Um, and there's a digital lock that has a sound lock, uh, essentially, that makes beeping sounds of different frequencies to, to unlock it. Which is weird because it's a digital circuit board, so you would, I, I don't know, the whole thing was was, was kind of strange. Um, but he, of course, because he's a, he's a master electronic genius, master of all things hacking, he figures out a way to use some, you know, uh, clamps, medical clamps that he finds in a, in a drawer, um, a locked drawer in an infirmary. Uh, so, and he hacks together, he finds a tape recorder that I guess a doctor is using to record notes and figures out a way to record the tones uh, when somebody comes in and he, he gets the, the kind of the duty guard there to uh, come to the door by banging on it, saying he has to go to take a pee. 
of course, that guard is is busily sexually harassing the nurse um, that is, you know, working there and comes, unlocks the door, tells him he has to pee. And he's like, no, I don't really have to pee. Locks him back in there, plays, rewinds the tape, plays the tones, escapes, so forth and so on. So I, I just think that uh, this would have been, I get what they did. And again, it's kind of an homage to the phone freaking kind of idea. I thought it, it was okay. It was a little lame and, and, and that he knew how to do this. I just don't buy that. Um, some kid, you know, you, you have to learn things. It's not just by osmosis of the universe. Where would he learn to do this? And then secondly, it would have been more interesting if he did some kind of social uh, hacking, a psychological way of escaping because he, w- you know, is a budding hacker and social engineering was really probably one of the main weapons in his, uh, you know, toolbox as it were, tools in his toolcase as a uh, toolbox as it were. So anyway, just kind of a lame thing. It doesn't really work for me, but uh, you wanted to talk about this as well. Yeah, so I think there's good and bad things here. I think that actually I have less of a problem with him getting out of the infirmary than the rest of it. Um, I do I do like that the drawers are locked. You know, it's not super easy for him to get the equipment he needs. Uh, you know, he, he basically finds a tape recorder and those scissors, right, and plays the tones back. I also like that it's a call out to the phone freaking. No. It's like a reference to that and shows that they they did do some research and they were kind of tapping into that yeah. history. Um, yeah, how likely it is, yeah, is another thing. But but the other thing I have problem is the whole idea of him being oh, there in totally. the first place. Right? The FBI picks him up and then he's at NORAD. Like, we're going to take this guy we think is a Russian spy. And we're going to put him in our most top secret area. Like that makes no, why wouldn't they just take him to an FBI office and have FBI? And then they have like Dabney Coleman, who's a computer scientist, grill him. Like, wouldn't you have the FBI do that? I mean, the government doesn't work that. They don't have like their computer programmer do interrogation. They have law and they have the FBI do that. And so it was the whole thing of bringing him to NORAD in is completely ludicrous and then, then, of course, Dabney Coleman's trying to play good cop, and he lets him out, and he ends up going to the terminal and talking to Joshua again. And they catch him. They, you know, the bald guy, you know, uh, catches him. And they bring him back to the room. And they, they before they had him handcuffed, wouldn't you handcuff yeah. him again? Because you had just seen him try to do something. So it's like, it's crazy. The whole thing is crazy. And then, you know, they have this tour going on, right? In, in the NORAD. Now, NORAD is now at DEF CON 4, and we should mention they got the DEF CONs wrong, right? They, they do it as level 5 is good and level 1 is bad. It's like a countdown. But in real life, DEF CON 1 is the normal situation, and DEF CON 5 is like, we're going to have a nuclear war. So they got that backwards. But they said at the time that was kind of not a well-known thing. It was kind of a government secret anyway. But that's kind of funny that they yeah. fucked that up. Um, and uh, But there's this whole idea. He... I think it see so he breaks out of the office right and fine you could say the the short circuiting of the com, of the console whatever uh you know we get a little comedy with the with the the creepy guard you know talking to the secretary or whatever nurse. and they just leave him with the with the nurse they just leave him with the nurse like he's this guy they're putting in a room you you, you I mean it's like they got one guard. I don't know. It just seems weird. But anyway, he gets out, right? My biggest problem is he somehow navigates this complex fucking ventilation yeah. system to find his Why way. I mean, it's ducks. like he's never yeah. been in this. Yeah, it's like, it's like he's going into these ducks, and it, you seem like you could get really into a dangerous situation there. But he manages to find his way out. He gets out by um, joining the tour group, right, and kind of seeing he sees it's kind of clever they they sees military shoes and then he sees these other people but this whole 
thing of him going, getting a bus, you know, getting a, you know, he, he gets to a phone booth and he uses like a pull tap to uh, somehow take the magnet in the phone receiver and click it. And I think that's a real, they said that was actually a real thing you could do. Um, and um, that's kind of clever, but it's like, he's out in the middle of nowhere in Colorado or whatever. And then he somehow gets, he calls her, she gets a flight, they get all the way, they just make, you know, it's like the whole trip to Falcons is so awkward. And it just, it just seems like the clock is ticking and they have all this time to do this crazy travel. It just, I just don't like this whole scene from him being locked up at NORAD for being at NORAD in the first place. And I think it's the weakest part of the movie. I I, Um, want to just add two things. One, they're having a nuclear war and they're still giving a tour at NORAD. Like when they can't, yeah, yeah, exactly. when they canceled the tour that day, it's like, yeah, we got other things to worry about here. We, we, we don't need the, you know, the class from, you know, Mrs. Uh, Thomas's third grade class visiting. Uh, yeah. Birmingham, Alabama. Yeah. There, there is a funny joke in that though, where they're like, he's like to the tour, the woman like press this button. And she's like, Boop, and it's like nuclear. Yeah. War, and then it's like, have, you know, surprise welcome from Birmingham. But the reason they did that was obviously to have a mechanism for him to yeah. seek out. That's the whole reason they did that. But yeah, you're right. It's like if they had, were under DEFCON 5 or over DEFCON 1, as it should be, they would not have yeah. a tour. They have a Russian spy there, too. It's like it's like they just had this almost crisis and they, they have this guy there. You know, it's like it's it's ridiculous. And, and this whole part of the movie is really if there is a weakness in the movie, which, again, I think it's it's still fun. You know, we got to remember this is science fiction and it's fantasy and it's an action summer movie. It mostly still works, but this is the least effective part for me. And the part where every time I've watched it, I'm kind of like, eh, this part is not well, so great. Also, when they come back from Oregon, you know, when Falcon picks them up in a, a helicopter and, you know, takes them, they're going back to NORAD. <clears throat> they, in the time of the movie, they essentially go from Oregon to uh, Colorado <clears throat> in about 20 minutes, it seems like. Half hour, something like that. It's 1,200, 1,300 miles. To Colorado Springs, yeah. How did, like, yeah even seems- if they went on some military jet or something like that, it's just it's just not it's not plausible. He goes he goes he goes from Colorado Springs to Oregon, back to Colorado Springs, and the timeline doesn't make any sense. Yeah, how long would it take a helicopter to fly from Oregon oh, to? I, I Colorado? mean, the helicopter might go at like 170 not miles a plane. an hour at most, right? Yeah, I know it's ridiculous. I, I assume right? they got on a plane and went, but still, it's still 1,200 oh, okay. miles. They're not going to do it in 20 minutes. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Unless they're traveling in a Blackbird or something like right. that, which they weren't. So anyway, it, it, it's uh, it, you know, it was just stupid. That's a huge plot hole in my in my estimation. So anyway, you you wanted to talk about uh, some of the other uh, technology stuff, right? Right, stuff that's maybe implausible or insightful. Right, you talked about the password cracking and how that was completely wrong, but I think it it's good for the movie. I think. Um, one of the coolest things that I did not know, you probably knew this before because you had read Cuckoo's Egg a long time ago and and also you, you know, had more experience with this stuff. I, I think, um, you know, obviously we're, it's cool to see the MSI 8080s room with the, what was it, the five and a quarter inch floppies? No, I, inch I don't floppies. think I never, eight inch floppies, yeah. The, the the kind of soft, the actual yeah. floppy floppies, not the hard, hard ones, which is one the ones I actually first used when I got my first computer, which was a Mac color classic in the nineties. Um, 
But the MSI 8080, the whole hacker's room setup is, is so cool. I mean, it, the way his room looks in general with the sign that says do not enter yeah. or whatever, it's like perfect. By, um, by the now, way, I neglected to mention the first computer system that I actually played around with was a PDP-11. It had those eight inch floppies. It was at the computer lab at my right. school, this ancient fucking computer. But I was mesmerized by that, too. I just, I don't know why I didn't. I wonder how much did the, do you remember how much those stored? I don't, but it was hardly anything. Like yeah, and we, we didn't get yeah, to handle yeah. those. Like the guy who operated the computer actually used those eight inch floppies and we'd have to ask him to do it. So it was this really old fucking crusty terminal. It was like the worst thing ever, but it was amazing to ch- to get my hands yeah. on. Anyway. So obviously, you know, the scene of war dialing, I mean, we can talk about that because that was actually a legit thing. And it's actually the way in the cuckoo's egg that Clifford Stoll is able to figure out that the um, the hacker is using a hub in Virginia. He actually uh, sees that there, there's a series of numbers in Virginia and he's able to call them and text test if they're computers. And he finds one for MITRE Corporation. And that's one of the 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 ways that the the hacker from Germany in that book is able to mask himself. So this was actually a legit thing. And they call it war dialing after war game. So this was like a place where they use technology where it was sort of plausible and kind of a real thing, which is great. Now, schools with networking, obviously in 1983, there was no fucking schools that had networked computers. I mean, I remember when, even when I worked at FileMaker in the 90s, networking for schools was kind of a new yeah. thing. And so in the 80s, there, you know, maybe Beverly Hills High might have had a network, <laughs> but um, but it's, it's funny. Few. But this whole idea of, Networking and changing grades would be very influential. In fact, um, Matthew Broderick would do it again in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Um, so it was influential. And obviously, we talked about this in Beverly Hills 90210. Um, Steve Sanders in episode, you know, in, in our episode 36 on the great Beverly Hills 90210 did this thing too. And I also love the bad password thing because again, you know, in our modern era, we're always told to use certain kinds of passwords. And when you sign up for a website, it's, you know, have one number, have one weird character, use mixed case, right, to prevent dictionary attacks, which uh, is talked about a lot in The Cuckoo's Egg. And this whole thing where he pulls the drawer open to see these uh, passwords just written in a desk drawer is actually really realistic for the time. People use really stupid passwords. Even uh, one of the system administration passwords in the Lawrence Berkeley Labs that's talked about in Cuckoo's Eggs is the word wyvern, which is like a mythical dragon, but it's all lowercase. It's an easy password to guess. Um, and so, you know, it's and it's funny. I love the the crossed out passwords. One of them, the password he was the current password was actually yeah. pencil in the movie. But I love that they were like school things like yeah. effort. Yeah. You know, it's kind of funny. Um, and one of the other. So that was kind of unrealistic, but also prescient because it eventually would yeah. happen. Right. Um, and. um the other thing is, uh, uh, you know, the speed of computers at this time in the movie, when he's talking to the other systems, it's way too fast totally. for the time, right? I mean, 300 bound modem, you'd be waiting for the characters to print one by one. It'd be very slow. I remember my first modem in the 90s was a 28.8 when I first got my internet account. And I remember, of course, what did I want to do? The first thing I wanted to do when I got Poor on me. the internet was look at a, a naked <laughs> picture. And I remember watching a picture just paint itself on the screen slowly. Was it the same until, kind of picture like, that Greg know. was looking at? My guess is it wasn't. Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know. He was looking more at, at text and stories at that okay. point. But 
Um, but at any rate, yeah, I remember how slow it was. And and obviously 300 baht is like crazy, right? I mean, that's yeah. so slow. Even 1200, um, which came shortly after this time. All right. It's still super slow. And then, of course, we can talk about artificial intelligence. Maybe I'll leave that for Jeff. He knows more about it than I do. So, uh, but this movie is kind of prescient in what it did, even though there's some implausibility of how that would have happened. It just is such a graphical, it's just such great storytelling. Uh, that last sequence with the tic-tac-toe game going into the um, nuclear simulations and how exciting it all is. And they're just using computer graphics to tell a story. It's it's quite brilliant. Um, and what's in- interesting, another thing about this movie is when they were writing it, there actually was a news story about a real-life simulation that was taken to be yeah. real um from the new york from the uh psyop computer or whatever what it was uh it was actually in the news so this this movie was kind of right on the money with predicting a lot and i think that's one of the things i think is is great about it some of the some of the uses of technology yeah well uh you know look before we get into our final evaluations here um you know the post uh, 80s computer scene you know we all have lived through it obviously you have the PC revolution, you have all the stuff with devices and cell phones and iPhones and the whole internet and all that kind of stuff. We're not going to get into that. You all are living it. One thing that we did want to talk about a little bit more is the Cuckoo's Egg, the Cliff Soul book, uh, which is a great book. Uh, you should read it if you're at all interested in any of this stuff. It, it's very quirky. And if you see videos of him online, he's still around. Um, he's on, makes videos on a channel that I watch called Number File and stuff like that. He's, he's, extremely aspy nerdy guy but entertaining in the best possible way um the thing about his book this took place in the in the late 80s um is that a lot of the sort of plot devices in war games about the simple passwords the low barriers to entry just being able to get onto a system and, and guess at passwords and use a, a system operator passwords admin passwords was in fact reality and the ease in which hackers could uh, transverse all these systems for real in the cuckoo's egg, and this is like five, six years later, is evidence of this. Uh, you mentioned he used war dialing to find the computer at MITRE uh, Corporation um, and, you know, use the same techniques there. Um, you, I, I mean, I think you agree about how this kind of corroborates how much they got right in war games, right? The cuckoo's egg? Yeah, yeah. I mean, cuckoo's egg was a really good corollary. It's funny, I had this book for like 20 years on my bookcase and I never read it, but you know, Jeff's like, let's read this book and talk about it in this context. And it's like, man, this was a really good idea because it really did make me appreciate this movie more. Um, because a lot of what's in this movie is referred to in that book, even though that book is a true story about a German hacker who hacks into a lot of uh, military computers and other uh, research uh, computers around the United States trying to get uh intelligence for the KGB. So it's, it's actually really amazing how well this movie holds up with regard to something that happened just not too much later in, in reality. And and one of the things that Clifford Stoll talks about when he's uh, initially discovering the hackers is he, in in his system in Lawrence Berkeley laboratory, where he, he uh, worked, um, not the national laboratory, which is, you read the book, there's a big distinction um, the thing about it is he just assumed it was innocent kids, you know, kind of looking around for the thrill of it, uh, you know, just trying to get into systems. And, and 
the exploration was their motivation, just discovering new things, just to see if they could do it, that kind of thing. And Clifford Stoll was a bit like this himself, and he just assumed that was the motivation, as Slip just mentioned. In this particular case, there was, you know, spy and, you know, a KGB behind it. It was a little more nefarious. But, I mean, a lot of the motivation for early hackers you hear people uh, talk about was, like, that the thrill of discovering things, the thrill of getting in some place where they're not supposed to, um, just trying to see if they can figure out and crack the system. It wasn't to, you know, be a spy or to sell secrets or anything like that most of uh, the time. The other thing about the cuckoo's egg, and, again, please read this book. I think it's worth anyone um, who's interested in this topic to read there was an early Nova episode made about this uh, book and the experience that Clifford still had called the, I think the KGB and me, something like that. And yeah, you could find it on YouTube. Just look up Clifford Stoll. You'll yeah. find it. Clifford Stoll. Nova. So, so why don't you talk a little bit about why this was amazing? Yeah. What's amazing is it is most of the people in the movie are playing themselves. So it's like normally when they do a Nova, you know, it's like a documentary series. It's a lot about science. It's a great show. It's been on since the 80s, I think, was when it first came on in uh, public television. But this episode is a complete reenactment of the story of the cuckoo's egg. So you could watch this. I still recommend reading the book because the book, it goes into more detail about the exploits. And if you're into computers at all, you should read this book um, because a lot of it still holds true. Um, and Clifford Stoll actually invented a lot of the ways to go after hackers that were later used, um, even though he was an astronomer. You know, it's just he was a he was a he was a he, this was kind of his side job while he studied astronomy was his main field. But back then, of course, if you were a scientist and you used computers, you had to write a lot of your own code because there just wasn't software out there for you to just there wasn't like MATLAB and these things for you to just use. Um, so a lot of his stuff he had to write himself, but he was also like an admin. And um, but in this Nova, he's playing himself. And what's crazy is there's this one scene in the book. This is like my favorite part of the episode. There's one scene in the book. He's talking about his girlfriend who's also in the movie. Right. And she plays a big role in the movie because in the story, because one of her ideas, her and her other their other roommates ideas was to plant fault information about SDI in order to get the computer uh, hacker to stay on longer so a they can trace the call. The whole call. Yes. Honeypot. And, and the and the call tracing back then involved, you know, tracing a call all the way through the U.S. to Germany through this and, and the German uh, Hanoverse, uh, where the where the hacker was, the it was all using ancient manual switching. So they had to have a person there to trace the call. So they needed like an hour or two. So what they did was they copied, they made up all these documents. They took old bureaucratic documents and and changed them and made up their own documents about this secret project, a new SDI, new strategic defense initiative. It's so brilliant. But anyway, there's one scene. He's constantly. Getting up, he's get, he has a pager going, and he's constantly getting paged whenever the hacker logs on. He's got all these programs that monitor things, and these printers that print out everything he types to see what he's doing. And he and and interestingly enough, he's contacting all these different agencies: the NSA, the CIA, the FBI. No one wants to help him first. A lot of a lot of it's because this is new, and a lot of it's because there's not really any damage that they can see. Although they realize eventually that the hacker was doing bad things and eventually probably could get information he shouldn't get. Um, but, you know, it also goes to show these agencies don't cooperate with each other. They don't really work together. And that's eventually what led to fucking 9-11. So it kind of shows that it, that that those the bureaucracy and the problems that causes. But one scene, he's paged while he's in the shower with his girlfriend and they show this in the fucking show. Yeah. 
him in the shower with his girlfriend. I mean, that blew me away. I'm like, wow, these guys really were all in for doing this dramatization. Yeah. It's like, yeah, we'll, we'll fucking take off our clothes. Again. I mean, probably they're wearing swim trunks or bathing suits, but it's like they actually did the shower scene. That's yeah. so funny. But it's it's they very the acting you know, for this. Yeah, they went method and the acting is very amateurish because yeah. they're amateurs. And you can see like this kind of chubby Unix administrator, like in him running to get the, to the computers because, you know, they obviously didn't have a lot of software. We have now like trace route and this kind of stuff to follow what someone's doing. It's all kind of like really had to be kind of done by hand. And um, it's really interesting. I mean, it's it's amazing that something so technical could be so compelling um, and yeah, maybe it argues that war games should have stuck to the truth and not exaggerated, you know, for drama. Although this is a book and that's a visual, uh, visual t- uh, t- storytelling, so it's a little right. different. But yeah, it's 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 well worth your time, and it definitely enhanced the war games experience for me reading this book because I'm just like, wow, this is just like war games. It's just the other yep, side, exactly, right? exactly. All right, so let's do our evaluations and, and uh, wrap things up here. So uh, I'll go first. A couple thoughts on uh, kind of what war games got right. I I think the lack of security and trust-based networking that was ubiquitous at the time we just talked about in Cuckoo's Egg, absolutely true. Um, The innocent, thrill-seeking motivation, especially like Lightman was just looking for games. He wasn't trying to crack into some military computer. He's just, hey, I just want to play this new game from this new company they saw an ad for. Um, The excitement of this rapidly growing technology scene was very compelling to a guy like Lightman in school, a smart guy. You know, he had a lot of power at his fingertips, much more interesting than biology class. Um, and, you know, especially to somebody who was slowly mastering all these uh, new things that were coming on the scene. I found this very accurate and very uh, evocative of my personal experience. And I thought that was a huge part of the movie and got it right. Um, that War Games got right is that hacking is pretty much still is today, was then all about the command line, about typing commands in, and, and it's not necessarily visually compelling. Matrix mostly got this right in, in a couple of ways. I certainly cover that movie at a point, but um, it just shows that bad, you know, that they, um, all these movies where the hackers are transversing some 3D interface and some, you know, it's all bullshit. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, Badham, John Badham said that he had some computer experts showing how Lightman would go about doing all the stuff on the computer. And he's just like, no one's going to sit there and watch all these steps. And he simplified it, but they still kept the, the essence of it. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's all about command line stuff. And that can be very compelling and be very um, interesting. And, uh, you, you know, again, fascinating. Like you mentioned, Ali Sheedy sort of touching the screen and hearing the modem dial and like sensing there's some kind of power in what was happening, you know, even with these very basic text-based things that were happening, I I think it was all great. And all these other directors who resort to this visual buffoonery, I just... Yeah, it's all, I think it's all really influenced by uh, uh, William Gibson's Neuromancer. You know, it's this whole cyberspace thing where you're jacking into Uh, the system and it's just so dated. I mean, it's like, God, hackers is that way, you know, where the character is hacking and there there's all these equations, computer generated equations with this terrible CGI. The computer system is like access denied. (laughs) It's like, 
it's like oh man i'm going through the system i'm yeah. flying and it's like it's like it's so dated even though that movie was 1995 and they actually did research for that like talking to you know reading 2600 and using a lot of the terms it's like they they fucking got it completely wrong it's it's a fun, bad, it's a really bad movie that's fun to watch with a group of people under the influence of certain uh, uh, substances, but it's a terrible movie. Whereas this movie, yeah, it does. It seems like how it yeah. is for the most part, even though, like you said, he cut some corners on things because, you know, he's got to tell a story. He's got to engage the audience. But they, they showed him like putting the phone into the modem coupler, which at that right. time was the way it is when I had one. It was a it was a circuit board card. I didn't have to do that. Same with you, right? So that was kind of the early '80s, you know, view of how modems worked and all that. So they they mostly got it right, and uh, they they uh, should be congratulated for that. Um, AI. I want to talk about AI a few seconds here. Uh, I'm not. I could spend hours talking about this. It just happens to be something that I'm involved in professionally. Um, that's not really what's important here. What's important is that. Um, they got a lot of the fundamental concepts around this mostly right. And I want to talk about what they did get 100% right, which is reinforcement learning. So re for those of you who don't know, uh, reinforcement learning is this idea, uh, if you're familiar with like the AlphaGo project that you know Google DeepMind did, um, where it, it, the computer, uh, the AI program sort of taught itself how to play Go by playing against itself. There's examples of this like with Pong and Breakout and things like that, but essentially, the AI system um, learns to get better by playing against itself to improve its technique and strategies and stuff like that. And there's actually even recent research where um, models using reinforcement learning are actually more effective if you teach them things before they actually start the reinforcement learning. So you kind of seed these uh, systems with some basic knowledge, different topic. But the thing that they got right is Joshua is doing reinforcement learning as it's learning about the futility of nuclear war. Now, the way they present it is is a little visual and a little, you know, for the movies. But the concepts were were, were on on uh, spot on. Well, didn't AlphaGo also? It, it's kind of similar, right? Because it learns tic tac toe and then it applies that to nuclear war. And didn't go AlphaGo. Wasn't it able to just learn chess too? Well, I mean, you have to program in basic rules that. It will tell you. Yeah, they yeah, put in yeah. basic rules, but it became like it taught itself to play chess using the same yes, mechanism yes. really fast. Like it was really fast. They were like, holy yeah, shit. Yeah. Like this, this shows that it's just learning and it can it taught itself how to learn, not just go, but also could apply. Yeah, it to chess. And, and the, the ability for it's still very in early days, the ability to learn one sort of system and apply it to a novel system is not quite there, you know, but. The basic strategy games, like you're talking about, there are some commonalities. Again, I don't want to go too much into, into the details here. The point is, is that it got this right. And by the way, reinforcement learning is not was not new. They didn't invent this. It had been around in, in parts from the 50s in concept. Right. Like all the AI concepts have been there for a long time. A lot of the science was done. We just didn't have the computing power to do a lot of this then, right? Now That's we right. do. Or at least... That's right. It, right. And in fact, one of the early video scenes that they show Falcon is a chess game with little robot arms connected to the pieces. Right. You know, right. Um, which is which is hilarious that that's how they thought, oh, we're going to teach this uh, computer to play chess instead of putting a chess game in in the computer. They were going to have this robot play any anyway that which, by the way, they were 
portraying that as an early example of this, which is exactly the kind of like weird ass shit they did way back in the, in yeah, the day. Yeah. So they got that. Some of that footage had to be yeah. real. I think some of that footage was probably stuff they got. And from it was something so else, good. You know? you know, it just looked, it just yeah. looked really good, but they got the, the reinforcement learning concept. They got it. Like I like 99.9% right. Um, back in the early eighties about what it would actually look like today. And again, if you go in it, the the canonical example, at least as we're recording this, are things like um, DeepMind's AlphaGo, which did it for you know with some modifications. It's a little more subtle and sophisticated, but it essentially did what they talked about. Um, the whole uh, Bolton Board thing, which wasn't covered in the movie, um, it was right on the edge of this you know time, and they they made some allusions to it, um, but they got a lot of those details right. There's some very subtle homage things there that you could tell that the people who are involved in making this sort of understood what was going on. We talked about the war dialing, demon dialing stuff already. Uh, phone freaking, um, introducing this idea to the general public, the idea that you could play tones and get stuff to happen on the phone network. Um, they didn't go into the details a lot in the movie and it, some of the things they took some technology and artistic liberties with, but the idea that they introduced this as part of the hacking culture, very important. I think they got they got that right. Um, and his early computer setup was was amusing and uh, largely accurate. Although a kid like Lightman, who's not from a rich family or whose parents weren't in an industry, likely wouldn't have had that setup. But that's neither here nor there. Um, what they got wrong, they took okay, they took some artistic liberties. Some of them were silly. We talked about the password, my rant about that. Um, the, the one I want to talk about more is the debate of human versus machine was a little too simplistic and a little pat. Um, there's a, some fun about AI and the roles of human in those systems where, you know, humans, you, you mentioned this uh, before, right? You were saying kind of like uh, debating, should computers control things? Should humans be in control? You know, the, the Barry Corbin character, Behringer, was saying, I want my men in those silos. I sleep well at night knowing that they're there. Again, this is a topic that keeps coming back again and again. I keep mentioning this as we're talking about these sci-fi movies. I often mention this in the idea of flying cars, where you have like these 3D city kind of people flying around. Humans are not very good. Most humans can barely master driving a car on the, on the two-dimensional surface of the Earth. Humans cannot deal with a lot of different dimensions of complexity very well at all. In fact, humans don't actually fly even airplanes, commercial 747s. There's all sorts of computer systems that actually fly those. And so this idea that humans should be in control of anything of any sophistication is complete garbage. They can't. We can't. We're just not set up for that. And we, we live in this world increasingly where we have these very sophisticated, multidimensional, complex adaptive systems that literally humans cannot control, right? And, and so I think that a lot of these movies get this wrong. Um, the Matrix tried to tackle parts of this and did so well in the first one and failed spectacularly in the second two, which we'll undoubtedly get to at, at some point in time. But I, but I think that, um, you know, where uh, humans are the savior of these systems, is if they're a human in the loop, everything would be okay. Is just kind of nonsense. It's not even practical or possible. Um, we talked about the time and space inaccuracies traveling back and forth to NORAD, and you mentioned why would they even bring him to NORAD? Yeah, yeah. 
That's not where they would interrogate a, a, a spy. They don't want him seeing exactly. everything. You know, it's ridiculous. They, they'd be interviewing him at a downtown Seattle FBI office, right? Yeah, that's economical storytelling, yeah. but in not necessarily an effective way. You know, it's really uh, not the best part of the Agreed. film. Uh, lastly, the impact of war games. Um, I think it was really one of the, you talked about some of the other movies, obviously, earlier that led up to this. Um, but I think this serves, this movie had a huge, huge impact on this whole culture. Um, it served as an amplifier vehicle and framework for the earliest discussions about information technology. Um, the wake of this film, major news media were focused on the potential for this scenario, all the hacking stuff It led to laws. Uh, Reagan, in fact, uh, I mentioned that Lasker um, was a family friend of the Reagans, and he uh, had played at Camp David for Reagan. And the first thing that Reagan uh, said uh, after seeing the film is, who am I and why am I? No, actually what he said, sorry, that was a Alzheimer's joke and poor taste. First thing <laughs> he, he said is he, he went to uh, his joint chiefs and said, <laughs> that was to see if you were paying attention. Uh, yeah, yeah. He, he he went to his joint chiefs and said, is this possible? Can can this actually happen? And they're like, they did some research and they're like, yeah, I can. And like, it, it, was, it was like one of the first presidential directives on, on computer security that came out of that. There was also law policies about the um, past and the wake of this federal internet policies called the Counterfeit Access Device and Computer Fraud Abuse Act of 1984 and uh, things like that. So it had a major impact on society. It had an impact on other hackers, uh, Kevin Mitnick, who famously uh, was uh, busted in the mid-90s. You know, there's a whole bunch of things about that for another time. But he, Kevin Mitnick said that this movie had a significant effect on his treatment by the federal government when he was busted. He was held in solitary confinement for a year because a prosecutor told the judge that if he got near a phone, he could dial up NORAD and launch nuclear missiles. <laughs> nice. It's funny. Um, he's now like, of course, a security consultant and my wife, uh, the library, the videos they watch on like educating them on phishing yeah. and, you know, good passwords and stuff are all narrated. That's hilarious. So he, yeah. he's gone over to the, you know, to be a white hat hacker, apparently. So yeah. anyway, but I mean, this had a personal impact on him being held in, in solitary confinement. And then this movie is just hugely influential for a lot of other movies that would come later. Um, most of them are terrible. You mentioned hackers. Um, it, you know, there's actually an, an unrealistic hacking scene in probably one of my favorite movies ever, Real Genius, which we'll get to at some point, mm -hmm. where Holly Feld is trying to hack into a scene, uh, a system, and it's and it's not very accurate. Um, there's all any number of horrible uh, hacking sort of uh, scenes in movies that are all one dumber than the next. This movie has a huge impact on stuff like great stuff like The Matrix and maybe not so other uh, great stuff, not so great stuff like, you know, Ready Player One, the movie. I'm sure we'll cover that movie in, in the book at some point. And lots of other hacker, hacker characters and archetypes and, and things like that. So um, huge, huge, huge impact. Uh, finally, evaluation building up to it. Um, for this epic episode, which is going to be our longest one ever, but this topic deserves it. Evaluation, uh, just 100% long on this movie. I think it's fucking great. It definitely holds up. I could see this being an important movie even 20, 30 years from now for people to go back and look at the history of the, the chronological history of our society's uh, technologicalization, if that's a word, right? Um, 
you know, I think it's just high quality all around, the acting, the script, the execution, the entertainment value, all top notch. Um, you know, I think in the long arc of history, at least, you know, to date, there's probably 10, 12 mainstream hacker movies, you know, sneakers, hackers, the net, all those shitty movies. I think there's only two that are important that anyone will care about. One is this and the other is The Matrix. Uh, and they're, they're very different movies. One is fiction, you know, uh, and but they both handle hacking, obviously, as a core part of, of, of the plot. Um, ends of the spectrum. But, but anyway, I think this movie captures the excitement, obsession, and innocence, even, of the early days of computing. So very, very long on, on this. So over to you. Yeah, so I agree. I'm I'm really long on this film. I think it what it gets right, it's amazing. You know, I the whole reinforcement learning sequence is just incredibly exciting, even though the one little flaw there is, of course, uh, what is Whopper doing all day if it's not playing these scenarios? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like that's what it was supposed to be doing, but it, it only learns about that after playing tic-tac-toe. But it's like it just doesn't matter because it gets the concept across the simplicity of something like tic-tac-toe being a feudal game and translating to nuclear war, I think is such an elegant, eloquent uh, way of putting it. And just the scenes of it playing rapidly and the bombs blowing up and the snares being played over and over again against, of course, our favorite safe cracking mechanism is just completely exciting. And one of the greatest final sequences of any film. Uh, you know, it just communicates. I mean, I think the whole AI versus human thing, I think I agree with you a bit because obviously it's really humans that are the problem. Humans are the ones who have decided nuclear war is winnable, right? And they decide it's it's something we can do. But at the same time, I think it's just a way of communicating the futility of nuclear war. Um, and it's using that out of, and the machine kind of represents us losing control of that. Right. It's it's us getting so advanced with technology. We for, we fit, we we kind of lose something fundamental and it's something that the computer even needs to learn. So I think I get why they did it, but I kind of agree with you a little bit there. Now, I think the the biggest flaw of the film is what you mentioned, the whole uh, escape sequence from NORAD and being at NORAD at all. Uh, it's very awkward. Right. Um but the use of the technology, again, uh, you know, as Jeff mentioned, so many movies. I didn't we didn't talk about the net with Sandra God. Bullock, which is like even worse. I mean, it's like this website and she clicks this icon on the corner of the website and it starts going crazy. And she eventually has control over all of the world systems uh, from a from a website written in 1995 that, uh, you know, has these blinking. It's got blink going on and it's really funny. Um or VR fantasy kind of stuff, right? And yeah, I mean, The Matrix, you bring that up, it, it kind of has to do with hacking. It's more like a really kind of a Philip K. Dick thing. I mean, he he's like a hacker, but you don't really see him do much. You kind of, once he gets into The Matrix world, his idea of hacking is, again, more like a VR thing where he's like fighting shit and dodging bullets. And it's, I mean, you know, we could talk about The Matrix. We'll, we'll get there, I'm sure, because it was a, quite a, you know, it's a film people still talk about. Um, but I think it's different than this. I think this is more grounded in reality. Yeah, for obviously. sure. It's yeah. about, even though it's a science fiction film and it's about some stuff's implausible, so much of this is grounded in the real world. And so much of it seems so real. Um, I think the dumbest thing at the ending of the movie with the flashing lights is when the computer starts short circuiting. <laughs> 
That's that's the dumbest thing. And and it's funny. It reminds me of those episodes of Star Trek where Kirk makes the computer short circuit by talking yeah. to it. And he's like, your your logic is this. You believe this. And the computer's like, that's not up here. <laughs> it's kind of like that. It's really. And 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 John Madden was actually in the commentary was going, yeah, this was kind of dumb. We probably could have gone without doing this. Um Again, the tone of the film where it's at once, you know, you've got this 80s popcorn movie with action, but you've got black comedy, you know, with we didn't we kind of glazed over piss. I was going to talk about that right at the end. Yeah, I'll talk about it now. So there's a there's a there's a famous scene where uh, the Barry Corbin character, Behringer, when things are going haywire, the computer's not ceasing and desisting after they know it's a simulation. It's carrying on trying to try to launch the codes. Barry Corbin's character says, hell, I'd piss on a spark plug if it would help anything. Barry Corbin uh, grew up on a farm somewhere in the South, it sounds like from his accent. And he had a friend and they were driving tractors around and the tractors had exposed spark plugs. And he had a friend who was going to try to piss on the spark plug to see what happened. And he said he pissed on the spark plug and learned a valuable lesson about how many electrolytes are in urine and was electrocuted right. and knocked about, he said, about 30 yards through the air, um, electrocuting his dick, apparently, um, and landed on his back in a, in a field. Uh, so his friend actually did piss on a spark plug. And that line was improvised by Barry Corbin. So one of the best lines in the movie yeah. was an improv- improvisation from Barry Corbin based on a real life incident. So there you go. Right. So you have this black comedy of these characters like, you know, these actors like Dabney Coleman and Barry Corbin, who are like these black, you know, they, they add a level of comedy yeah. to the film. You know, the, the I mentioned the gum swapping episode as well. And you also have high drama. You have the darkness of Falcon's speech, his lecture and the kind of scene afterwards where they're wondering if they're going to live or die. Right. And I think um uh, I love Ali Sheedy and Matthew Broderick in their roles as well. I mean, they're teens. They're having fun. They're, he's he's definitely kind of an amoral character in a lot of ways. He's breaking, you know, changing grades and doing these things. But Bragging then when, he can't the, get arrested because he's uh, a teenager, you know. Yeah. Right, right, right. And she even says, like, isn't your phone bill high from dialing these numbers? And he says, well, there are ways around that. And, of course, we know that Marcus Hess, the hacker in Cuckoo's Egg, also found ways yeah. around that um, by dialing into the University of Bremen and then having that computer dial other computers. It's kind of implied that that's what David Lightman is doing as well. Um, you know, and I like that they had this other director at first, Martin Bress, because I like the darker elements of the movie. I like the the apocalyptic lecture about the dinosaurs and, you know, uh, how we're all going to die and all this stuff. And it, it gives a level of urgency to the film that I think makes the final scenes really work. Um, but then you also have the lighter touch of Batum, you know? So again, I, I think this is a great film. I think it really holds up. And I think uh, people should also read Cuckoo's Egg. And I think if you read Cuckoo's Egg, or at least you watch the great Nova show and you watch this, you're going to see parallels and you're going to see how realistic this was for the time. So I think we're both very long on this film. It's great to have its 40th anniversary. It's time for people to revisit it for sure. Yeah. And on that note, just to note that this is uh, our longest episode ever. And so uh, three hours, yeah, almost three hours and on a worthy topic. So 40th anniversary, three hours of CFX. I'm Jeff. That's slip. We're going to go war dial uh, and hang out with Jim and Malvin. So take it easy later. Oh.